Yeah. Okay, I think we're live now. Um, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the March 25th, 2023 edition of the Saturday Free School. I'm joined here by many other members of the Free School. Um, and we have a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about today, but all of it is interrelated and interconnected. So it's going to be a really good discussion. We're going to start by talking about the banking crisis in the United States, as well as around the world. Um, and then also touch on other world events, including the recent meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Um, and, okay. and then we're going to transition towards assessing the event that we held last weekend titled Korean Civilization and Paths to Peace and Reunification, um, which we held on Friday and Saturday of last weekend. And then we're also going to talk about the anti-coalition rally, which um, was also held last Saturday, which we've briefly discussed before. And then if we have time, we're going to talk about um, trying to wrap up Black Reconstruction or return to Black Reconstruction, but to kind of understand the, the logic of Du Bois and how Du Bois's logic helps us to understand all of the other things that we're talking about that are moving and um, kind of shaping our world today and where the world is going. Um, and so with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Anthony Montero to start us off on the banking crisis. <laughs> Anthony Montero. <laughs> okay, how you all doing? So nice to see everybody, believe me. Uh, I missed you all over this past week. I can't do without seeing or hearing from you, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, I wanted to, you know, kind of just say a few things about the um, changing architecture of world political and economic relationships uh, in this moment, which establishes the framework and the context for everything that we discuss in the free school, our worldview, uh, and uh, how all of this uh, is part of a transformative process taking place in the United States. In other words, the US people are not separate from these uh, major events in the world. But I think, <clears throat> Although the um, collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, which is the 16th largest bank in the United States, uh, and then of course the collapse of uh, Credit Suisse, which is one of the largest European banks, uh, is very, very important in that it uh, demonstrates the fragility of the American financial system, which is run by a very, very tiny group of people. In fact, um, you know, I talked to Sophie a great deal about this, and she said something very, very important. Because, you know, who understands all of this? Even the actors, the players don't understand what's going on completely or at all. 
Uh, certainly, I don't think the Federal Reserve does or the Treasury Department or the government. Uh, but um, Sophie said to me, and I've taken this to heart, that, well, it's not to be understood. The opaqueness uh, of the situation uh, makes it possible for these central players to operate as they do. In other words, uh, things happening behind the scene, uh, out of sight of regulators or the general public, uh, facilitates the type of recklessness that these few individuals engage in. Um, and they have the assurance that no matter how much they mess up, uh, the, the federal government will bail them out as they did in 2008 and as they're doing now uh, without any guarantees or assurances that such behavior will be civilly or criminally punished. Just trillions of dollars will be thrown at them to save them under the um, claim that if these banks collapse, at least in 2008 with Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Lehman Brothers and the big Wall Street banks, that this is a systemic threat. Now, they're not saying that the collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, constitutes a systemic threat yet. We just don't know where it's going. Uh, this bank now on the West Coast, you know, in 2008, it was Wall Street banks, these huge uh, behemoths of finance capital. Uh, and, you know, fin these financial instruments called um, subprime mortgages. And, you know, all, I wouldn't get into all of that BS. It's contemptible. But um, they defrauded the American public. People lost their homes. But then eventually it brought, uh, almost brought the whole financial system down in the United States and would have spread uh, throughout the world uh, had action not been taken. I don't know that this is yet on that magnitude. However, the difference now from then is that uh, the possibility or the reality even now of what we call stagflation, a economy which is not growing, and it is not growing, uh, uh, side by side with inflation. Uh, and we haven't seen such a, a scenario since the 1980s. Uh, but, and, and I, no one can claim to really know what's going on or what certain behavior or activity on the part of certain players, what, what those actions will lead to. You know, what we do know is that you got certain inverted commas, brilliant, hot shot, just out of uh, business school, 
with all kinds of computer skills, sitting 24-7 in front of a, uh, of a screen, looking at the movement of money and bonds and stocks all around the world, and then making decisions about where to move money. Uh, now, the other thing is, you know, the question of, well, what is a bank? Is Silicon Valley Bank a bank? Well, it was a certain kind of bank, more of a brokerage or investment house where they were managing the money of huge, uh, uh, not huge, but significant um, tech uh, entrepreneurs and corporations. In other words, a lot of money was flowing into these startups, these new uh, ventures having to do with social media and other things. And where do, you, where, do you, where do you put that money? Well, you put it in Silicon Valley Bank and they will manage your money. They will invest it uh, and so on. So 90, over 96% of the uh, deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were way beyond the $250,000 that is normally insured by the federal government in the event of failure. 96% of the deposits in that bank were larger than that, uh, which meant that it was not a bank as we think of it, of a mixture of depositors, that this was a investment house for huge um, uh, investors. Uh, what happened is that, uh, and it, all the time, the best that I can gather from this is that, uh, you know, they, their uh, loans or what they owed was more, this bank, what they owed uh, in terms of uh, payment of bonds and other things was less than what was coming in. Uh, and so a panic starts. Big investors begin to pull their money out. The, uh, the, the price of the uh, stocks in the, in the bank began to go down. I think they went down 80 some percent. And so people got away from it. Now the question is, would it spread? Would other uh, investors and medium-sized banks do the same thing? Just in some instances, it did occur, but it was not a full-scale run on the banks. Uh, they, they contained it for the time being. But more than that, I mean, it showed the fragility of the financial system. It showed that only a few people are involved in making these huge decisions. Uh, a very, very tiny group of people, maybe on a world scale, no more than 10,000 people are deciding the fate of, of billions of people. Uh, and of course, it begins with the Federal Reserve and it's from 2008 up till today, this cheap money policy. Um, 
I think to understand everything from gangster rap to gentrification uh, to all these BS movies, you have to understand cheap money. Uh, if you want to understand the growing inequality uh, between the super, super rich billionaires and uh, the 90% of the American people, you have to understand the monetary policies of the Fed, cheap money, that I can get money, I can borrow money almost without interest and then loan it to people who have credit cards, who have student debt, who have um, mortgages, car loans and everything. Uh, in other words, a big investor can borrow money at no interest rate and then loan it at 6, 10, 12, 20% interest rate. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And that's the robbery that they were doing. Uh, Rudolf Hilferdink and Lenin called this system finance capitalism. Um, it is a system where the banks run everything. Uh, financiers run everything. And let me just give one, you know, there's this big thing of derivatives. Derivatives are a whole set of financial instruments. When we say a financial instrument, uh, an instrument that investors invest in, such as subprime mortgages, cryptocurrencies, um, and a whole set of other things. I, you know, they're all over the world. So kind of a shadow banking system, a market in derivatives. And they, you know, I, I know at one time there was a lot of talk about the uh, a dollar value of these derivatives. And the last I heard was a thousand trillion dollars wow. of derivatives. A thousand trillion dollars is what we call a quadrillion. <laughs> the market in derivatives is about 10 times the size of the world economy itself. In other words, the shadowy market in financial instruments that are unregulated by anybody, that banks like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and probably some of the big ones are engaged in, but this is all underground. Nobody knows what's going on. These people are not regulated. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's all predicated upon no interest loans from the government and other sources, but primarily the government to banks and corporations. This is a huge thing. And the consequences of this, I don't, I don't think anyone knows. However, and this is where the Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin summit comes in. And even in spite of this 
a looming financial crisis, this meeting was the most important event of all. Uh, first of all, it's symbolism. And, and, you know, in politics, and certainly global politics, symbols mean a great deal. The coming together of Xi Jinping and um, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin fits with the thinking and movement of major uh, nations of the emerging economy, emerging global economy. And I mean, not just anybody, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, India, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa. This meeting sends a message that the West and the United States can no longer be trusted or relied upon, that a new set of economic and political relationships must be constructed to protect all nations against U.S. sanctions and against the recklessness of U.S. financial uh, institutions and, uh, and players. Uh, and I think of, of all the agreements, and they made a lot of agreements, but the big one was that, um, uh, how would I put it, that uh, Russia and China, and certainly Iran and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and South Africa and Argentina and Brazil will move away from the US dollar, you know, and that uh, a maybe basket of currencies, but however relations, financial and trading relationships between this new emerging coalition of nations is carried out, that everything, all currencies will be gold-based. This is highly significant. And that is why the Chinese government is dumping its U.S. government bonds and buying gold. That is why Russia is buying gold. In fact, one could make an argument that the toppling of the Gaddafi government in Libya and the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi was over the question of his proposal of a gold-based African currency that would not be uh, uh, based upon the euro or the dollar or the franc or the pound or any other European-based currency, none of which are gold-based. In other words, by saying gold is the, uh, uh, the way to measure the relationships of currencies, it's a way of saying also that gold will be an objective arbiter.
or mediator. It's not what the US dollar says or what the petrodollar does. In fact, uh, we call this process de-dollarization. And it is as important as these new political relationships that are emerging uh, because what is happening is that the dollar is less and less the currency of trade and finance of a growing part of the world's uh, economy. And when you talk about Russia, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, we are talking about, at least from the standpoint of strategic commodities, some of the major producers of everything from oil and natural gas to the more uh, important uh, minerals that go into chips and computers and other things. Um, so we are entering a new world uh, and I think we should celebrate it, of course, cautiously because the United States in the face of this is threatening sanctions and war. First of all, to weaken and contain China. And Xi Jinping is absolutely correct. It's not paranoia. The United States wants to contain China as this engine for a new world order, economically and politically. Uh, and, you know, I know in the Korea event, we, we said that, yes, multipolar, but, and this is, I think, the important thing, a new democratic internationalism. Yeah. Uh, so that's all I would say about that. <clears throat> I had two questions, Doc. What does it mean for an economy to grow and also what is cheap money? Say that one more time. What does it mean for? What is what does it mean for an economy to grow and what is cheap money? Wow. I could I could explain cheap money better than the the last the first question. You know, cheap money is money where you don't have to pay interest on. And the government, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, through what they call quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve would go in and buy the bonds of corporations and banks um, and um, would do this at very low interest rates, almost free. So in other words, let's say you came to me and said, look, you know, I need uh, $100 to next month, you know. And I say, look, here's $100, just pay me $100 back. Mm -hmm. But you take the $100 and invest it, let us say, in bonds that would pay 6%, let's say 3%, right? Or let us say you invest it 
in corporate bonds or corporate shares that bring a tremendously high return. So you get, let us say, in a month, rather than $100, you'll have $115. But you only have to pay me $100 back. Oh. Now, the trap is that um, this floods the economy with money. And once there's more money than there are goods and services, mm -hmm. it creates a spiral of inflation. Okay. You know, and inflation is the great uh, enemy of any economy. I don't care whether it's Zimbabwe or um any other, any country, because what inflation does ultimately is to uh, cheapen your currency, which means it's more expensive. You have to spend more dollars or more whatever currency to buy, let us say, oil, because the dollar or whatever currency is not as strong or as valuable as it once was. Inflation, even as bad as it is to the domestic economy, in a global economy, weakens the position of dominant national players. I don't know whether that makes sense all the way. So the US dollar on an international level is at stake. Now, how you measure the growth of an economy, this is a big problem mm -hmm. because we're measuring all kinds of activity. As you know, the United States deindustrialized mm -hmm. the last 30 or 35 years, which means there's not a lot of production of goods of manufactured things like cars and televisions and uh, even computers and refrigerators, you know, things that people buy. In fact, a big part, and I, I don't have the data to say what part, but a big part is uh, has to do with financial services. So in other words, Take a bank like Silicon Valley Bank. They could say on the books, our, um, our bank is worth, let us say, $250 billion. But that's just an accounting thing of what that bank is worth. But if the stock, of the value of the stock of that company collapses mm -hmm. and the bank which was 250 billion uh, a week ago could be all the way down to a uh, hundred million yeah you see what i'm saying so what is the value of the united states economy yeah right, 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 right. we just don't know and we're being told something <laughs> by the government that is untrue. Mm -hmm. We do know 
that we do not have a manufacturing base any longer. Mm -hmm. You know, Emily and uh, and y'all are up in uh, in in Western Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. At one time, one of the most highly industrialized areas of the United States and of the world, mm -hmm. Chicago, where Magna is. Mm -hmm. South Steel, Southside Steel Corporation, mm -hmm. one of the greatest industrial corporations or facilities in the world for steel production doesn't exist any longer. So they say, well, don't worry about that. We have Silicon Valley Bank. Right. <laughs> but it, it's the value of that bank is, is indeterminate. It's what that bank says because to say that we're worth 250 billion is to encourage investors to invest in it. You see what I'm saying? But if the investors find out it's really not worth 250 billion, they withdraw their investments and the bank collapses. So the collapse of a bank like Silicon Valley or like Signature or like First Republic, any bank with all of this on paper valuation affects the measurement of growth, which meant that the economic growth in the US economy was, was fake in a lot of ways. And the average person knows that something is wrong and we're being lied to. And if everything is going so well, why do I feel so impoverished? or why the growing inequality. So that's the way I would put it. It is very difficult uh, to measure an economy which is so financialized as the US economy is. Now, if we went to China with this huge industrial base uh, or India or Argentina, uh, we can measure what is being produced. And so finance does not play the huge role in measuring the Chinese economy as it does here. Yeah, Doug, yeah, what you're saying is actually really helpful because following the collapse of SVB, I was telling Eddie this earlier, but all these banks are essentially reaching out to their customers, trying to say like, oh, no, like this is just a problem with SVB. And yeah. it's not indicative of a larger problem within the U.S. banking system. Mm -hmm. But and the question around cheap money is also really important because SVB epitomizes this um, sensation of cheap money that had happened, especially during the COVID pandemic phase. And because SVB itself, it represents approximately like I think half of all tech, like what you know as tech and biotech firms. And the whole uh, mechanism by which these firms are funded is that initially all of these companies just burn through money. Like they're not profit generating. And so like what you see as like these sensations with like um, mostly um, advertising um uh, social media platforms, their goal is not in the beginning, they call it as like a growth phase. 
and growing until growing and burning through cash resources until they can eventually get to a phase where there are profit generating. But that doesn't happen actually for a majority of these companies. But Silicon Valley Bank essentially appealed to this customer base, um, customer meaning not your average person that is um, banking with, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I think I forget the exact term that they use, but essentially like people who are just depositing like their paychecks, Mm -hmm. withdrawing, uh, but rather um, these clients being these vast startup companies. But the way that these vast startup companies get money from something like Silicon Valley Bank, the loans are actually very dubious because the loans are given based on how much venture, what essentially they call venture capital Mm -hmm. they can raise. But that's not always indicative of of the next round of whether or not they'd be able to raise that money. And so what you were saying is that, you know, all these companies are getting this cash, but essentially it's just this like Ponzi scheme of sorts where another thing with um, SVB is that in order to get a loan from SVB, you had to deposit with the bank. And essentially it's this huge cycle where money that's going in is being loaned out to these other startups that aren't even making money. And then there's a huge question now, which is what you were saying, which is that um, these companies that have less than, or these depositors that have less than $250,000, but aren't insured. Now the government is essentially saying is that all of them are being covered. And the banking industry is wary to use the word, well, the word bailout because of the 2008 financial crisis. And generally the public is um, skeptical of it, but it essentially is a bailout because the government itself is covering all of these deposits rather than the banking industry or like the individuals that were responsible for it. Mm-hmm. But that's also the question because they're trying to sell SVB and all these banks that are collapsing, but no one really knows what the val- value of these banks are because right. like you're saying, the loans themselves, you can't really, you don't really know what the loans are worth because it's very likely that um, these companies, these startups are unable to pay it back if they aren't able to raise the next um, round of money. But like back to what you're saying, like, I think it's very hard to understand. And, um, but you're being told, like people are being told that this is an isolated incident, incident and it's not indicative of how actually the U.S. conducts financial transactions. Um, and even in this discussion, it reminds me back to, uh, I think, a couple months back or a year ago, this Chinese insurance company was essentially trying to break off its American. Um, so this Chinese company called Ping An, it was this insurance company that has uh, invested in certain banks, like global international banks. And one of them was HSBC. But they wanted to break off essentially the Asia component to break off from the European components because it, they weren't sure of like how, like what the workings were of um, the European banking sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that connects to what you were saying about, you know, new, like these countries trying to actually have something that's more transparent and actually has a certain um, backing to it rather than policies that are always fluctuating and also uh, unclear and not based on a real economy. Right. Yeah, just to, to add to what Alice is saying, I've been, I feel like a lot of us have been trying to like understand what's going on because it's not even just that it's complex, like the the plumbing underneath the financial system that it's complex, but that so much of economics and finance in the US and in the West is 
basically not just like a scientific thing of just like, you know, supply demand, but it's also people like actual political, there's like actual political calculations and essentially propaganda because you're always trying to convince people of certain things. Like that is part of how the economy, like the financialized economy works, which is that you're always trying to uh, kind of induce confidence, which is why Biden is like, oh no, the system is sound. Like we had to convene an emergency meeting yesterday with Secretary Yellen, but you know, the system is sound and people have no reason to worry. But that is part of how the economy functions is belief. Like how do you actually convince people? And it's not just like the objective, like buying and selling and where people invest, but it's based off of also people's behavior and trying to um, manipulate people's behavior. Because one of the things that I've been trying to understand is why, for like the bank run that you described, why did it happen in the first place? Okay. And it seems like the main reason why is that, so SVB had its investments in long-term US treasury bonds. And that once the Fed started to raise interest rates, basically reversing like 13 years of um, quantitative easing, that then um, it became clear to the depositors that they could get a better rate of, inve a better rate of investment um, instead of being invested in long-term government securities, but instead in like more short, even more short-term government bonds. And so, but then part of the problem was that SVB had no obligation to tell its, its depositors or the, basically the world how much its own investments were actually worth until people started withdrawing. And so basically um, all of this is happening because the Federal Reserve um, basically wants to trigger a recession because the thing about like, cause I think, yeah, the thing about, I've been trying to understand like, yeah, the cheap money quantitative easing thing, but it seems like this was a strategy that was implemented to solve the 2008 financial crisis where basically you're flooding the, you're flooding the market with like, as you were saying, cheap money and that this is quote unquote growing the economy. But what that really means is that you're inflating the actual value of stocks and real estate and all that, but you're not actually growing the real economy. You're just increasing the value of the financial sector. And this becomes a problem as soon as inflation starts to actually like what we're seeing right now, where basically Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed was like, we need to trigger a recession because now only now inflation is going to start to raise wages and we can't have wages go up. So that means we need to trigger a recession and that means we need to raise interest rates. And so this is basically all of this is happening because of the Fed's policy and their determination to basically trigger a recession um, which is leading to ultimately things like Silicon Valley Bank. And I think, yeah, Michael, like that economist, Michael Hudson um, was saying that there are differences between the 2008 crisis and this one in that the 2008 crisis was based on essentially like fraudulent valuations of mortgages and like basically like the value and the credibility of those mortgage loans. But that instead of, the crisis today being based on like a false evaluation of like mortgages. Instead, it's based on essentially like the entire financial system itself. And the fact that the Fed has put itself into a corner where it has to raise interest rates because it doesn't want like wages to go up. But then it also can like if it raises interest rates too much, then what happened to SVB is going to happen to all these other banks. And then you're also going to come bring the financial system to a crash. Um, but one of the things that 
another aspect of this in terms of dollarization is um, that I think you can, I think, I think this is the case that the trend of dollarization globally was hand in hand with the trend of um, what's it called? Uh, deindustrialization because mm -hmm. the purpose of dollar of dollarization of making the U.S. The, the global reserve currency was also to facilitate cheap labor overseas and that in exchange for that you could get quote unquote a higher standard of living within the U.S. because things were cheaper to buy from other countries um, but and so that's partially why people even like Tucker Carlson are like like uh, de-dollarization of the world would be bad for the United States because it would lead to a decline in the standards of living. But they don't see that it would, it's, de it's dollarization itself, which creates conditions for financial instability and ultimately the decrease in the American like standard of living itself. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, I think, yeah, just part of the, the difficulty of understanding it is that they have deliberately set up this system to be unintelligible to ordinary people. Right. And even I don't like, even as I'm saying this, I don't even know if what I'm saying is actually correct because there's so many layers of basically people lying in order to protect what they have in order to protect also like their own. And someone was commenting this, but when they talk about, you know, Caleb's question about economic growth, is that the actual growth of the real economy and people's wages and their actual income? and the growth of obviously manufacturing and all that, or is it just the growth of the, the relative wealth of assets of the financial sector? Because that's what they've been like measuring economic growth by for the past decade and a half in the United States after the 2008 crisis. And now all of that is basically coming home to roost. Um, but yeah, I think that one thing that has to be emphasized is that if the, U if, the if the world goes off of the U.S. as the Federal Reserve or as the global reserve currency, this is not something which is ultimately going to be like a devastating thing to the American people, but actually it can create new conditions, even if like there are contradictions that come with it. Um, but yeah, sorry. I, I think that was just something I wanted to add based on what Alice was saying too. Man, it's, it's good to talk with y'all about this, man. The same thing, man, trying to get a, a internet finance degree uh, within the past few weeks, man. This, this stuff is not easy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to I wanna emphasize, uh, I guess, some of the, some of the points that y'all were made, especially, I guess, the mechanics uh, that you talked about, Jeremiah, of the, basically when the Federal Reserve uh, increased the interest rate, like the base level at which the, 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 basically charge you for creating money. Uh, it is spreading. Th this problem is spreading throughout the world. Uh, it started localized, obviously, uh, uh, in tech, for example, with uh, SAB and also another another uh, bank called Silvergate, which is the gateway to the crypto world. Uh, so, you know, the, the, they, they, they try to find, uh, they try to obscure certain technicalities as to why all oh, these banks are the first ones uh, and they're they are, they are an exception uh, be because of uh, their position in tech. Uh, but in essence, uh, with the increase in interest rate, the, the mechanism in which they fell into problems, which was the, the all, all the bonds that they bought at a low interest rate, getting a very low rate of return, uh, and now not having access to cheap money and needing to sell these bonds uh, in, in order to cover the costs uh, that are associated uh, with the present moment, uh, especially people paying people that want to take their money out. 
uh, and put it somewhere else where they can get a higher rate of return. Uh, this is a problem everywhere. Uh, and we're seeing, as we, as, as you mentioned, Doc, uh, Credit Suisse, which is a Swiss bank. Uh, I was looking at a, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, man. My Germans, y'all got to help me out if we have any. Do Deutsche Bank, uh, they're also facing uh, deep problems right now. Uh, uh, and so any, and all, all, the, all the players that are part of the American financial system are exposed to the same risks and problems right now. And it's it's it started in the small regional banks in, in, in the United States, and it spread to a huge player like uh, uh, Credit Suisse, for example. And the very interesting thing, uh, specifically about Credit Suisse, is that they are largely owned by uh, Saudis, uh, Saudi Arabians, and they actually are one of the first uh, international players to take a hit because the Saudis are like, we're not going to play ball, we're not going to rescue this bank, we're not going to put more money into it. Uh, they, I, in, in some ways, I think are rejecting the United States and, uh, and the West and, and looking elsewhere in deciding not to help out this uh, American financial system. They're saying this is a ship that's going down and we are going to cut our losses and, and look towards the greener pastures of Asia. I think, I think that's uh, what it's signaling, uh, which opens up a wealth of possibilities, not just for them, but for all of us. Uh, and so I, yeah, I also want to emphasize the, the possibilities right now. Uh, in the short term, this, this is going to be uh, disastrous to people's lives because uh, uh, they, they are specifically trying to uh, uh, get people unemployed. Uh, and the, and the, the, the wealth that people thought they were getting in, in buying homes, for example, that, that is uh, if the value of assets goes down, whatever wealth they built up there, all these, pa all these payments they're going to have to make uh, it's they're basically going to be losing losing money. If you're worth the house is house you bought that at a peak is worth four hundred thousand dollars, and then uh, interest rates are really high, and so people's month you know basically what you can afford for a home is is like after you get the down payment is, is the monthly payment. Uh, you can afford a higher monthly payment at a lower interest rate. Uh, so when interest rates go down, your uh, your ability to buy goes up, which is what happened uh, during uh, uh, this quantitative easing. And uh, this lower interest rate, but uh, when the interest rate goes up, you can afford less. So basically, people are going to have to buy homes for less. Uh, but you're going to be stuck footing the bill for that four hundred thousand, even though you can only sell it for three hundred thousand or maybe even two hundred thousand. So a lot of the wealth of Americans is uh, likely to to evaporate if uh, interest rates continue to rise, uh, which they probably have to. This 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 is unsustainable. Uh, so yes, the short term, I, I don't want to, uh, ignore because this is people's livelihoods, but I, I also want to believe in greater possibilities as well. Yeah. I was also just thinking about the peace movement in the seventies and when this inflation was happening, making this argument that you need to cut the military budget, you know, don't just keep printing cheap money. Um, these are the contradictions of the capitalist system. Whereas the imperialist system blamed stagflation on like uh, uh, producers of commodities raising their OPEC, you know, raising their prices. But um, this thing of the military budget is also so tied into all this, but all the explanations and the way that they, that will never figure into the way they talk about it. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I'm also just interested in how uh, this moment is similar, but also different to what happened in the 70s with stagflation, 
Um, and also just thinking about the Volcker shock that the um, the U.S. government put in, kind of similar to this whole thing of raising interest rates and really cracking down, which also ultimately led to, um, you know, the neoliberalism in the third world, you know, and structural adjustments. And it, it just really destroyed the economies of the third world. But we're in a very different moment and something really different is happening. But I'm just trying to make sense of it. I don't know if anybody uh, can help me understand like why this is different and yeah, just, <laughs> it's really confusing. Uh, no, because I think it's similar to Magna um, in like the value system of like the dollar is dependent on stock. Is that like what it is? Um, but then also... Could you ask that question once again, the value? The value of the dollar is dependent on stock. Oh, this is interesting. Go, yeah. Uh -huh. But then um, mm -hmm. thinking about the Xi Jinping and Putin, like similar to what Magna just said, how this moment is like different because like, and also Jeremiah, what you said was clarifying too about the de-dollarization or like how the dollar economy what that means for like the united states interaction in the world mm -hmm. and then also like mm -hmm. the question of the deindustrialized america that we're living in because what was what i was thinking about was like how is it that countries like venezuela saudi arabia china like they're all coming together and the United States is obviously weakening. It's coming at a very, it's like at a very weakened state. So like what the, like the United States imperialism does not have the control over colonies in the same way that it did. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, is kind of like in hand with, you know, what, does value come from and what is finance <laughs> um, really? So, but. Yeah, I think you kind of, it's helped answer my question, Serafina, that there's new structures of finance because there's these these other economies are rising. There are alternatives to the system. That's essentially a colonial system. Like where you, you don't, it, it's a zero sum game. You don't want the other people to, you want them to not develop their economies. You want to keep their commodity prices low. Um, and so there is an alternative to that infrastructure. Um, so they can't rule in the same way. Yeah, because I was also, when I was thinking about what everyone was saying, I also thought about the word control too, because especially this thing about how the rest of the world is now starting to, just like Gaddafi proposed for Africa, how the rest of the world is making those changes saying objectively, we want to go, we are going to use the objective measurement of gold. Yeah. Um, and how important that is um, because America and American imperialism is dependent on, I guess you could say abstract, like it's something that's very abstract, not um, it's all dependent on. And then thus that's why like something so unstable, like SVB, or in some ways, I guess the American finance system is dependent on a world economy 
dictated and controlled by America, which is also why it's a war economy. But it, was, it is also interesting because um, in this moment where there is a new world order, like there's a challenge of not just an economic way of doing things, but basically a political, a new political system where relations are different. Like we were watching, well, cause last night we didn't really have much to do. We just got to Beaver and <laughs> we we're watching TV. We we're watching the news. Um, and on Fox news, they were interviewing Gen Z, like a representative of Gen Z. And even though Jahan was making fun of her, I really <laughs> empathized with her um, because basically it was talking, <laughs> it was talking, <laughs> it was talking about how there's like, there have been, I guess there was a recent study showing that Gen Z, this like emerging generation Gen Z is that the thing that they are most concerned by as a generation is stability. Whereas in past generations, and I think it's a Wall Street Journal article, but other generations and other times, I think it has to do with this time period where you have this generation that can feel a new world order emerging. It can also feel the challenge to the existence of America and what it means for them and their future. And I thought it was so interesting that you had you have you had this young woman um, basically talking about like, I thought that she was saying she was like, when I entered college, I thought that the most important thing I could be was an activist. And then I realized that actually what I really want is just stability. <laughs> like she was talking about job, like employment, life, stability, because basically this young generation can feel that like this is an unstable society. My future as an individual is unstable. And I feel like maybe there was a moment like whatever, whether it was like the 80s, 90s, I don't really know, but there was a moment in America's history where the objective, the way people understood or could feel their place in the world was much different. But today you cannot, it's to me, it was just so interesting that if you are a person in today's world, especially the young generation, like you overwhelmingly people are saying like, I basically am done with war. I want stability. Um, and so I thought that was kind of related to. Yeah, well, in my defense, very generous. That's a very generous reading of that so-called Gen Z activist. She uh, works for this organization, PragerU, Dennis Prager's organization. I mean, I, from what I remember, she was, she was saying that, but then she was like, Generation Z is whining all the time, always whining, not working well. And that Fox News host, Laura Ingram, was like, yeah, all these people whining. Anyway. <laughs> but going back to Meg with the point that Megna raised, uh, you know, I think it's actually important because, uh, you know, now this moment we're in now and this discussion we're having of uh, other currencies turning to gold. Mm -hmm. And previously, my understanding is the dollar until uh, the Nixon administration was tied in some way to the gold standard. But it was in order to finance the war in Vietnam that they took the dollar off the gold standard. And then uh, there is a series of economic contradictions and stagflation, all that. And then the Volcker shock, which uh, Meghna was talking about, where the Federal Reserve, I think, raised interest rates and, uh, and then began a whole process of financialization of the economy and so on under Reagan. And, you know, I think uh, I don't I mean, it seems to me that they never really resolved how to uh, have a currency that's not backed by gold and how to deal with these contradictions of deindustrialization and so on. 
it's just that every few years they would, you know, come up with some new idea from the Federal Reserve and some new, the things Doc was talking about, new ideas of derivatives and so on to manipulate. But that basic contradiction was not resolved. And I think they had a, you know, basically were given a historic gift with the crisis in the Soviet Union and collapse of the Soviet Union so that there was no more economic counter rate for the past 30 years. But now things are coming full circle and this, uh, these counter hege uh, hegemonic forces are returning. And, you know, earlier we were also saying, like, what is the dollar backed by now? And if I were to say, what is it backed by? I think basically, as the um, currency says, it's backed by, you know, people's trust in the government of the United States. Essentially, just backed by confidence, not by any, not by gold, not by labor, not by any particular resource. Um, and, you know, like they say, confidence gain, confidence men, con men. Essentially, at a certain point, people's confidence goes away. And that's what we're seeing, that confidence, not only of uh, the American people, but then countries yeah. like Saudi Arabia and so on, their confidence is going away uh, in the dollar. So it seems like this is a situation we're in. This, his, this, this uh, contradiction could only be delayed. It couldn't, it couldn't really be resolved because the elite are not really interested in uh, confronting the, the basic problem. Yeah. I also just think it's interesting that the what you're saying is happening with china selling us bonds and going back to gold mm -hmm. it's so interesting because whenever you used to talk about china challenging the us the reflex would always be oh but they have so much money in bonds and you know their economies are so interconnected but this is really proving that that's not necessarily the case you know and you can't just use this economic determinism you have to think politically you mm -hmm. have to think historically like you know we talk about the logics of history um, and it just really shows things are changing in ways that you can't uh, explain from that deterministic kind of uh, framework. I would just say one thing about Saudi Arabia. You know, there was also an agreement that Saudi Arabia would only sell its oil in dollars, leading to this instrument known as the petrodollar. So the US government could make the claim that, well, it's not just a good faith of the US government that is backing the dollar, but it's also oil. And this created a circumstance where every nation and its central bank had to have dollars uh, in order to buy oil. And this meant that the US dollar, because it was necessarily held by every other uh, country, uh, the US dollar became, in effect, the reserve currency. So it was two things. It was oil, and the Saudis' uh, continued willingness to only accept payment in dollars, plus uh, and uh, Magna, your point, the military political hegemony of the United States, which was only increased with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which uh, unfortunately was never able to mount a significant challenge to the financial political architecture of the West headed by the United States. This time around, 
a coalition of nations, not just China alone. So you try to contain China, but how do you contain China and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Brazil and Argentina? So now you're going to contain the whole world. Can you do it? And as Africa emerges in a new way on the world's uh, stage, mm -hmm. in opposition to neo-colonialism, and, and we already see it, uh, nations from Ethiopia to the Central African Republic to Burkina Faso, uh, on and on, South Africa, of course, on and on and on, these nations are saying that the old world of U.S. hegemony is unacceptable and we now see an alternative, what I guess academics say, a new imaginary. We can see light at the end of the tunnel, but that light is predicated upon really an existential crisis of the U.S. financial structure, which, you know, then puts the ball back in the court of the American people. Speaking of which, I hope Jahan will say more, but did, did anybody see the uh, grilling Matt Gates gave to the leader of AFRICOM? Oh, my God. But what was so deep, he was saying, my constituents... Uh, in my district are being sent to do coups in Africa. And like, that's what AFRICOM is really about. Like, what are your core values? He kept quizzing. And this general was just like, uh, core values, core values. But it was just, it was, I was, I was shocked. Um, well, Magna, when I saw, and Jahan, thank you very, very, very much, man, for your, for your research. I mean, it really is so helpful. When I saw that, it kind of, what is the left and right these days? I mean, is, uh, is AOC the left? When she would never challenge uh, a US general, the head of a coup mechanism in Africa called Africa. I mean, that was so extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I was, I couldn't believe it. I watched it several times because I was like, is this real? Am I imagining things? Because it was just so stark. I mean, first of all, this whole thing they're trying to pull with this black general in charge of AFRICOM. And, you know, this is the American diversity or whatever. And then, uh, but the fact that this white congressman from, I believe, a, a predominantly white district, I think it's central Florida. And, oh, by the way, who also recently beat a fake human trafficking case that the FBI had put against him trying to destroy his career, which now I completely understand why the FBI was trying to destroy his career. He, he's coming out so aggressively challenging this general. And then, I mean, the things Magno was saying, he was talking about my constituents, our taxpayer dollars. He was like, are these uh, officers who are trained in coups, are they reflecting our values? Is this what um, the American people's values are? And then he even held up a photo of uh, some colonel, I think, from Guinea, who the U.S. had trained, who went on to do a coup. 
at the U.S. Embassy. I mean, he was completely exposing the military-industrial complex. I mean, it speaks to this uh, political realignment, as Doc was saying. I mean, this is a completely new, uh, you know, populist movement. And you put that in uh, the context of what Trump said, I think, uh, last Friday, where he, he had that speech on his social media network where he said, I'm calling for immediate peace in Ukraine that must be tied to a complete dismantling of the neocon, of our neocon globalist establishment, which is bringing the world to endless war and must be tied to a fundamental reevaluation of NATO and its mission. And he said the enemy of Western civilization is not Russia. It's with, it's us and our own America last elites. <laughs> I was like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, then it's no surprise that Trump is facing an indictment. All these people are facing FBI investigations. Uh, it's, yeah, the American people, the consciousness is, I mean, like as Doc is saying, never seen this kind of consciousness among the American people. And, then, and I mean, among white people, I've never seen anything like this. No, I was just wondering if you can repeat who said that. Matt, Matt Gates. I didn't see this. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, it's Congressman Matt Gates from uh, Florida. He's like a, one of the pro-Trump uh, Republicans. He's one of the people also that held up the speaker vote uh, earlier against Kevin McCarthy. He's a member of the so-called Freedom Caucus, which has been smeared. And this is, you know, so it, it, it relates back to what Alice was saying about how so much of the profits of these banks and financial institutions go into PR and advertising uh, to build up a brand and a certain confidence and all of that type of thing. The same thing with the news media, which is a uh, public relation firm for the neocon establishment. And anybody that in the smallest way challenges them will be smeared as a racist, a neo-fascist, and so on. I think, uh, you know, uh, in keeping what Jahan, with what Jahan is saying, that whole politics might be coming to an end, might be crashing and burning because of the, um, the uh, how would you put it, the... Uh, uh, oh, please forgive me. The, the untruthfulness and the fraud of the whole project. And I guess we'll get to it at some point, this notion of Trump as a fascist and the only people that can save us is the neocon and neoliberal establishment and these woke banks and woke politicians and and I guess we see coming to an end the politics of wokeness and identity as the more fundamental political and ideological and class issues have come to the fore. And of course, you know, this is what we in the free school are celebrating, are encouraging, are, are, are saying, in fact, this indicates this growing and deepening crisis indicates that the possibility of the U.S. people transforming the United States and themselves 
are very pregnant and possible at this time. Yeah, I also think like this portion of our conversation struck me as being really fundamental and deep. And I think that's because of like the peace question. Yes. Like it reminded me yes. um, of Tulsi Gabbard, like when we went to the march in February. And it just makes me think about like, just like the conversation we're gonna have about the two piece mm-hmm. marches and mm-hmm. uh, like you just said, the mm-hmm. the the fakeness and phoniness right, right. of woke politics. Yes, and basically that's like, what I was trying, you yeah. said it better than me, sir, yes. No, mm-hmm. and I'm, but it's just like really mm-hmm. deep because it's just like the existential quality um, of like the collapse of the U.S. and then the possible or the potentialities of like a new world and how, but like, I think I'm better understanding why like the peace question is so intense and important because it has to do everything with like, uh, well, Magna already said it, like the war economy and, and it's kind of putting together like why the United States in a weakened state cannot uh, keep, you know, China and Russia in bounds yes. or like go to war with them. Yes, 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 yes. it's insane, yeah. Um, because, because also like, I think hearkening back to a previous moment, like the United States would want to war upon Vietnam or Korea mm-hmm. because it's trying to control it or like mm-hmm. to, you know, mm-hmm. dominate and then use like, its own money and then power as like a um, a way to persuade the entire world that you know the United States is like the standard and is you know in rule, yeah. but like it can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. It can't war mm-hmm. upon mm-hmm. Russia, China, anywhere mm-hmm. anymore. And also, it explains Trump like America first, um, and it mm-hmm. explains mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe these other people in like the Freedom Caucus can see the contradictions today, but yeah, I just think the peace question is just really kind of intense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I kind of felt that mm-hmm. in the conversation mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you just said about um, like Trump's America First—it reminded me of something Xi Jinping said in like him and Putin's joint statements, where Xi Jinping was like, he said, "To run the world's affairs well." one must first and foremost run its own affair as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wow, Trump belongs with Putin and Xi Jinping and these world leaders making decisions for a future, like a real modern future, much more than like Biden, for example, and other American leaders. No, not to say a lot, but just, it just seems like that's like the essential question. Like, are we gonna fall into like a dark past and like be amongst like the night and like there is no future or or are we going to join the future? Like that's like the choice, but. That's a beautiful beautiful way to put it. Because I think when we talk about the collapse of the US system, it's not that we're cheering 
the fact that if the U.S. financial system collapses, that millions of ordinary people will basically have their lives devastated. Mm -hmm. Like that's not what we are supportive of, but that it's in this moment. So it's not just the collapse of the system, but the collapse of, as John was saying, people's confidence also in the U.S. government and the U.S. ruling class that there, yeah, like there is new possibility for, um, for the American people to chart a new path forward for this country in concert with the rest of the world. Um, and is it okay if I read some of the comments? Because um, there is a good discussion. Also, one thing I wanted to say before that was that um, there's an interesting fact that the legislation that was implemented after the 2008 financial crisis, which was called the Dodd-Frank bill, was co-authored by this Democrat who was like apparently the first openly gay Democrat or whatever in Congress. But um, the funny thing is, is that this legislation was designed to prevent banks from like large banks from collapsing in the way that so many did during the 2008 crisis. But that um, after this congressman, some I think something, something Dodd, his last name is Dodd, he, um, he basically went to become a member of the board for Signature Bank, oh, one the, of the banks that collapsed. And the congressman was Frank. Oh yeah, something Frank, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but he was basically, he became a lobbyist for that, one of the banks that just collapsed to lobby for the his own legislation to roll back its own regulations on the banks because I think initially they had said like banks that were valued at like 50 billion would need to go under very rigorous um, evaluation by like agencies, but that he essentially lobbied for that that um, that lower limit to be increased to only banks that were as large as like 250 billion would need to undergo that kind of evaluation by regulatory agencies. And so, yeah, it just shows like the kind of revolving door also of, especially the Democratic Party and how closely intertwined they are with the the financial elites. Um, but it's okay. If I can add to your comment actually. So it's very interesting. The uh, the, the SVB was very slick in staying like very close, but not surpassing the two hundred fifty million dollar regulation. And uh, one of the things they actually that uh, I was looking, I was you know, I'm following a lot of these uh, economics Twitter accounts, and they made some serious gambles uh, uh, in in the interest rate without uh, uh, protecting themselves against risk. I don't want to go too much into the to the mechanism, but basically there was a way for you to protect yourself uh, from rising interest rates, but you would just have to make a smaller profit. And they just didn't do that. And they did accounting fraud so that they would fly under the radar uh, and get away with this. Uh, and uh, another thing is that uh, th this, this uh, uh, adding to what you're saying, this really is a great moment of clarity uh, that can be uh, achieved for the American people. Uh, and the way that uh, uh, Jahan uh, mentioned uh, uh, Gates and, and the AFRICOM, people can look squarely in the face of the United States during this crisis and see it for what it is and choose to be a part of uh, bigger humanity. Uh, especially, for example, uh, in the way that they're dealing with uh, it's it's hard. It's easier, I guess, when you have great leaders that are calling out the war agenda, which is more visible. But it's ah, it's so much harder with this uh, with, with this financial stuff because it's just so well hidden. Uh, 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 like for for example, uh, we call it uh, another financial point. The uh, 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 so 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 on one side you have the United States government cutting SNAP benefits, which is a uh, uh, food assistance. So people are people are going to go hungry. Uh, and on and on the other end you have 
the it, it, which, which is nothing less than really a bailout for the financial uh, institutions right now. Uh, they created something new. I, I was trying to find a precedent for it. I, I guess I'm not old enough to to know, but they uh, have something called bank term funding program, uh, which is basically to help uh, businesses deal with their cash problem right now. And instead of having them uh, face the consequences of their poor uh, gambling, uh, they they instead uh, are going to get a loan uh, from the United States government. Um, they just have to put their their shitty financial investments as collateral. So the the the, the poor one of the poor financial investments that they made were these uh, treasury bills that uh, are low interest rates, and they get to put them at face value. So like what they bought them for, not what they're worth now, which is much less. And they get this sweet cash injection to continue to, um, I guess, make more questionable decisions uh, in the future, uh, which we'll see. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're seeing this problem with smaller banks, uh, but it's going to spread. It, it's already spreading as we as we talked about. And the bigger banks uh, are essentially going to swallow up the smaller banks and we're going to have more monopoly. We're going to have more problems that are, are going to be starker uh, in the face uh, of the American people. Uh, and I hope that uh, I guess our, our leaders uh, like Trump are able to uh, make this clear and communicate it in a way to the American people. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll read some comments. Um, so Kathy, Jake, uh, Ware Pilgrim on YouTube, Christopher Romero and others are saying good morning. Virginia Cotts has a nice comment saying, I'm still thinking about the Korea civilization event. It was profound. Um, Don DeBar asks, is there any chance of discussing Paris and especially the move by French police and firefighters to join the protesters in France. He also mentions the anti-coalition rally on March 18th, saying that their headcount was that uh, more than 2,500 people participated in that anti-coalition rally on March 18th, which was taking place on the 20th anniversary of the US invasion of Iraq. Um, and then there was a good conversation about in relation to the financial stuff um, where yeah, Don said, unless the return on investment is greater than the rate of inflation, people will lose money by putting it in the bank or in other investments. Virginia says the U.S. measures economic growth based on GDP, which has little to do with people's actual prosperity or progress. GDP simply measures our personal debt as quote unquote growth. Um, and then Dondabar also adds that the value of a financialized economy is determined by a virtual calculus that rests upon a consensus of acceptance. The value of an industrial economy, on the other, on the other hand, is based on real world values. Um, the government cannot summon into existence physical things like cars, TVs, machine tools, appliances, etc. by simply a fiat currency. Um, Virginia Cott says, the Fed's only tool for fighting inflation is on the backs of the working class, i.e. to create unemployment. Um, and then Don DeBar has a, basically he's kind of parroting or mimicking the financial class to, where they say, quote, let's all agree that the existing $4 trillion economy is now worth one, one quadrillion dollars. I'm gonna sell off the newly created 996 trillion. Do you wanna buy some? And I can get 10% commission as brokers. Um, 
And then he also brings up um, Lyndon Bates, LBJ's guns and butter thing, where he's talking about the kind of relate the dynamic between uh, Johnson's great society vision versus the war in Vietnam. Um, and also saying that um, like a new economy would seek to put or an industrial economy would seek to put finance and service of production rather than production and service to finance, which is what we currently have with the US financial system. And then also adds that um, lately the rise of the multipolar world is being expressed as marking the close of the 500 year reign of Western colonialism. In that context, there's an irony in the fact that a return to the gold standard is almost a 500 year reset to the status quo ante in the 16th century. Um, and then Daryl Wasteline Mitchell also adds, uh, thanks doc, Japan demanded gold. Japan demanded gold in early 1970s under Nixon. US said no, and then broke the Bretton Woods agreement. Um, the US made an agreement with the Saudis to sell their oil using US currency. And this meant that all countries had to acquire US dollars for oil. Everyone had to do things to get US dollars. In turn, the Saudis could buy goods using US dollars to invest in America. And Japan was, was ultimately left with valueless dollars. The petrodollar stabilized US currency. Military and petrodollar is foundation for dollar hegemony. Um, and it's a difficult subject. And then he links to an article about dollar hegemony. Um, and then Yvonne says, I just listened to the Matt Gates video on where he's um, at sort of criticizing AFRICOM and says it's incredible. And thanks, Jahan, for bringing it up. People were correcting me on the Barney Frank thing rather than the, the other guy. Um, and then VA from NY on YouTube says, is asking a return to the gold standard, i.e. sending people back into the mines. A government with a fiat currency is only limited by the availability of resources and then says we should change the government, not the currency. Um, and yeah, I think, I guess that's a value, valuable point, but it seems like the whole reason why the U.S. went off of the gold standard in the 70s was essentially to circumvent the guns or butter debate, where originally if your currency was based on actual like real commodities like gold and based in real world values, then each a government that was based on the war economy would have to actually ask like, how much do we want to spend on war versus how much do we want to spend on social spending? Whereas if you go off of that kind of standard, then you're able to basically spend as much as you want on money on war, as well as quote unquote social spending, because you can just print more money in order to basically spend as much as you want on both. And so, yeah, I think it's, we're agreeing that um, the real question is, can America become an economy that's based on peace rather than war in the long run. Um, but yeah, that's all the comments that I'm seeing for now. Jeremiah, even to add to the point that you're making is, I think with the rise of the new world order, it is important that the world economic system is not just based on the currency of one nation, because what ends up happening essentially with the dollarization is that as America builds up debt, it wants to increase, it's essentially have inflation so that the debt that America owes is, is less worth, uh, less, uh, is worth less um, in actually paying back. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is that because other countries have the US dollar in reserve, their, um, the amount that they have also decreases. But that's how it impacts so many other nations. And that's also why, as the US has been 
um, increasing its interest rates, it's also had impact on other countries that have the U.S. dollar um, and see its U.S. dollars decreasing in value. Right. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I, we're definitely not, I mean, I'm not definitely not an expert on the currency, but I do see that as a problem in which other countries are essentially subject to the whims of U.S. Uh, financial policies. And that's also uh, what nations are trying to figure out, like, what is an alternative to that? And gold may be one, and they're probably working it out. And I think even when, as the war broke out, like a system of bartering, mm -hmm. like direct uh, bartering of uh, serve or not services of goods was considered as well. Uh, but the piece mm -hmm. on... Um, changing the government is a significant piece of like, what are the political implications and mm -hmm. what does it mean for America in which the government itself does not represent mm -hmm. the interests of the people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the um, other novel innovations I think that came with the transition off of the gold standard was that the U S was able to the first time in history to say that we can, we can basically put ourselves in debt Put ourselves in debt but never have the intention to pay that debt back mm -hmm. to other countries and so in that way it's like debt doesn't actually become debt anymore it's something else but you're using debt in order to financially control other countries and to make them basically kind of integrated within the u.s currency system um and yeah uh, okay yeah well but, so what does it mean that so many americans are in debt Mm -hmm. You know, credit card debt. This is a big difference with China or uh, like they, they don't have their economies run on debt like that. Um, and it's just even Philadelphia, you know, there used to be saving societies. Mm -hmm. You know, the point is to help working people save and get assets and, you know, get stability. Um, I think someone uh, I think it was Derek's friend. She was telling me that they actually in the school system, they actually used to get the students to open up bank accounts like as a way of financially educating, you know, citizens of Philadelphia. But now it's all debt, credit card debt, and people are having their whole lifestyles financed on debt. Um, so it's, there's, it's, it's also, it's like a civilizational thing, you know, like this idea, it's, it's just Western civilization is based on having things that aren't yours, uh, but like enjoying it for this short-term kind of expediency. And it's just really destroying society and people's values. Um, yeah. Well, related to that, that, I was also thinking this thing that Emily said about young people looking for stability nowadays. And also the comment Don Debar makes about how a financialized economy, unlike an industrial economy, is not based on real world value. It's also making me think, I mean, it's very hard to understand the value of paper money in this country. I, I st struggle with it, you know. But I think more, more than even that, work and labor itself has been devalued in some ways. And one of the ways, one, one very stark way this, may, this was like, you know, made clear to me was when we were trying to organize reading groups at free libraries and so on and uh, you know this person Bruce the sort of the more experienced people there they have this impression that young people nowadays just come and go through jobs but are not really invested in work uh, in working in institutions and so on and also the fact that 
a lot of young people turn towards non-traditional jobs nowadays, like, you know, blogging or, you know, running small businesses from home. And this is encouraged as a way of being an expression of individual, like, you know, your individual freedom and creativity or whatever, but it's actually a mark of a failing economy that's not able to produce good and respectable jobs for young people just out of college. Um, and this is in stark contrast to something like, for instance, Ransom saying at the Black Reconstruction uh, Conference that, you know, I've been working for 40 years. And I, I guess Doc has also mentioned that before deindustrialization started or, you know, was in full force, everybody used to work and belong to one union or the other. And I don't think young people any longer, they believe that this is an option for them. So they, they're looking for like, you know, ways and means to uh, form non, a non-traditional <laughs> workforce, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, Jaham was telling me about, he's like, have you ever looked at a dollar and it says like in trust or something yeah. where it's like, the whole economy is like this idea of quote unquote trust or confidence. And like, I encountered the same thing even at my work where like, well, first of all, Philly, if you look at even the history of Philly as an economy, Philly's economy, there was a point at which it switched. I forget at what point, maybe nineties. I don't know where Philly's economy became dominated by services. It's a service economy. It's not an economy based on manufacturing or, anything like that production. And so there's a lot of like, even with my job where there's healthcare workers, you had a city like Philly, where there are a lot of hospital workers who work, not just, not, not just nurses or nursing aides or anything like that, but it's like people who like ransom Derek, they were 11, like actually a lot of people in free school, <laughs> like they literally worked at temple hospital yeah. as like housekeeping te texts, like med tech, stuff like that. And it was a career, like it was a job, like in the sense, like, I'm not just, it's not just getting paid, but it's like, oh, I have, I can buy a house with this job. It's a community, it's a union job. And there's a sense, it's very different than today where in healthcare, like a lot of young people just don't want to go into health. Like they, like, I feel like it's sort of this thing of like, back to the thing about the dollar saying like, oh, in trust, we in, what is it, in God we trust, in America we trust, whatever. Backed by faith, backed by faith blah, blah, blah. And people don't wanna, people don't have confidence in the economy. So why should they invest themselves in a career, in a quote unquote career, something like healthcare, when it's, when they don't get paid enough, they have to have multiple jobs, and you have to have two or three jobs to get by. And then the U.S. government says we have not only do we have full employment, we have like overemployment. And it's because everyone's working three jobs. And so it's like we've never like we've never had so much employment. And it's like because you're counting the people who are who have to work three jobs to make it. And oh, shoot, what was I going to say with this? But yeah, it's just um the thing about like people not, so then a lot of people, for example, they're like, if I can't make enough on this whatever profession, like, let's just say like being a nursing assistant in a nursing home and I don't even get retirement and I also don't get enough money. I can't pay my deductible for healthcare. Like it's not good for me. Then why should they work this job? Then they're going to work three service jobs. 
that's a lot of young people go that path. And that's a lot of it has to do with, I think the economy is not based, the economy has changed and there's no confidence in the dollar. There's no confidence or trust in the economy. And yeah, I've told this story before, but there was this woman, like, I was so shocked when I met this woman who like lives in Northeast Pennsylvania. She told me she was like, I could, if I wanted to work full time, but I choose to purposely work just enough hours to be considered part-time because the healthcare is so bad that I want to be, I want to work just enough hours below so I can be considered part-time and get Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And that was crazy to me. You know what I mean? It's like people find ways to just, at that point you have to like quote unquote scam the system like in order to get by you know this conversation also reminds me of something that Catherine has said before in the past which is that in philadelphia there used to be like these programs for people to get jobs mm -hmm. but instead now what they're pushing on the black community is this idea of entrepreneurship like you entrepreneur your way out of this crisis. Mm -hmm. But she says, you know, you can't because it's not like you can't just entrepreneur your way out of this crisis. There's a systemic problem where, you know, there's no jobs for people. Like we, um, there was a man we had met at uh, the church on 51st and Market or Spruce. Mm -hmm. And he was saying how in the past for um, the trades, you would be able to get out of high school and then and um, join a program where after a certain number of months, then you would take a test um, and then uh, be a full-fledged, I guess, working apprenticeship. But instead now you have to take the test first before you get in. And the barrier is just much higher. And even like in terms of the opportunities that are available have decreased. Um, like how is that's so different from what is now available, like, what he was describing back when he was coming up probably around like sixties, maybe seventies is different from what you have now where it's mm -hmm. just, you entrepreneur a way out, you create a mm -hmm. business, um, all of that. But how many individuals does that actually like right. impact? And how can you have a successful business if you don't have consumers? <laughs> I mean, if the, if you're going to open a business in a neighborhood, there's nobody to patronize your business if they don't have jobs. Not everybody can, you know, sell things. Yeah, man, it, it's crazy. There are people make businesses out of teaching you how to make a business because they themselves cannot find a way to make actual money. Otherwise, it's really fucking bad. <laughs> or what's also crazy is that talking about entrepreneurship is back when we were talking about the Silicon Valley Bank. The reason actually why I knew about Silicon Valley Bank was because so many people I know from school like go into and end up working in because it was the time when all of our friends were like, oh, like you can make money by doing computer science. So mm -hmm. a lot of my friends are in computer science and work in tech, biotech, pharma, whatever. And now they're what they're experiencing is layoffs. Or they already left their jobs at Twitter, Facebook, whatever, like maybe three years ago to start to be an entrepreneur. To start mm -hmm. Like I can name you at least does I like at least maybe 20 something people in my own personal circle who are my age who have tried to start a startup. Like the path is like you become a tech worker, tech worker, whatever that means. And then from there you try to get like you could go into 
it's called VC venture, it's venture capital, right? You try to find a VC venture capital, Silicon Valley bank, anything like that to start a startup. And then the, it's a, it's a cycle because everyone knows that your startup, it will be bought by a bigger startup or you, your money's gone or you're at startup fails and then you try again. And so it's kind it's not so different, honestly, than even the, what the type of people you're talking about, Alice, where I feel like it's everyone, different forms of being, different forms of being encouraged to be yours. Yeah. The other, like, it's funny because Purba mentioned blogging. I think we're a little beyond blogging now. It's influencing. Yeah. Which I only know because, <laughs> which I only know because like, yeah. I, I've, and it's just, uh, you just create this really inane content Mm -hmm. Um, and then the more views you get the more money you make i mean it's just that simple it's like this attention economy it's and ad revenue um mostly what it's ad revenue yeah it's ad revenue um and it's just uh there's something so grotesque about it because you're producing absolutely nothing except distraction mm -hmm. um and then it's all like it's an algorithm so even political identities become commodified actually i ran across prager you on these youtube shorts i mean everything is just so so the realm of like actual honest discourse is just shrunken and it's a big business um yeah because i think also gen z like this thing about them wanting stability <clears throat> but a lot of like gen z is really into like side hustles or like basically like they've given up on getting an actual job that's why so many of them want to be influencers or want to like be small-time entrepreneurs where they like i don't know like drop ship keychains and like slime to sell and it's just yeah it's really twisted because you like think i guess it's like on the one hand you think that you're an individual like capitalist hustler but on the other hand like megna was saying you're actually even more incorporated yeah. into the system of marketing and advertising and like you're really not independent at all I think on Emily's point, um, I, I really do believe these startups form their companies with the eventual goal of getting bought out. Yeah. Uh, I actually, when I was interviewing one of the startups that I contacted, uh, they, um, they didn't say it in so many words, but they were like, oh, you know, um, our main goal is to make this product and get it out into the market, but who knows? Maybe uh, Thermo Fisher will just buy us out and give us a whole lot of money. But then what? Then your business doesn't exist anymore. Everybody that has worked for that business doesn't have a job all of a sudden. And yeah. so I asked them that what happens to these people? And they said that okay, uh, they sort of retain like 10% uh, of these people. And when I asked another person who happened to be one of these 10% in another company, he said that even from these 10%, after a month or two months, they lay off 90% uh, of those people. Uh, so essentially that entire group that has started the startup has been working for it for maybe five, six years, gotten a first round of funding. Everybody's without a job within five years. Um, and... I was also thinking about what Alice said about how, uh, you know, this entrepreneurship is forced onto uh, 
the young people of today i think the stock market is also being forced on to them they are sort of encouraged to invest mm-hmm. you know it's with you, you don't have to do anything you just have to invest and then if you are breaking even that means it's working that means one day you will be able to understand the market trends well mm-hmm. enough that you'll actually make money because you are going to lose money in the beginning then you'll break even and then you'll actually start earning money but how many people have the capacity to lose money when they don't have any you know <laughs> um so it, it's really uh it's really a very confusing system but it's still being forced onto these people with an incomplete understanding of whatever is happening i mean nfts became so huge i thought the world had uh become insane and people were purchasing images for 15000 20000 um of oh, monkeys <laughs> could we we move on to the career evaluation <laughs> yeah um is okay if i just read a few more comments just apropos and then we could transition to the career event cuz some of yeah some of the comments are definitely valuable in adding to this the last part of the conversation but um VA from NY says if you fix the structural deficiencies of the global south by building energy food and industrial sovereignty then the dollar will lose its reign and then where pilgrim on youtube says that it's almost like scrip in the company store so like a certificate that you give that represents money in the company store um virginia cod says that every quote unquote recovery in the US has been accompanied by increasing personal debt and so every recovery thus involves increasing the immiseration of people um yeah and then people are saying talking about the bootstrapping myth of entrepreneurship um Colin Clement who we know from Cornell says Michael Hudson has said that the US dollar hegemony requires many dollars abroad until the US must have more imports than exports essentially exporting jobs whatever replaces this dollar hegemony will not likely be a single currency as most countries are unwilling to lose so many jobs as the US has um and then yeah people are talking more about the entrepreneurship thing and the gig economy which is as Emil is saying that this is intended to maintain the american assumption of quote unquote independent wealth um But, yeah. yeah. Um I guess we can go to the Korea event then. Um I guess I can start just as one of the like core main organizers for the event together with um Nuri and Doc and Anna who's not here but um I think that if for those who weren't able to make it I hope people were able to watch the live stream especially on Saturday. I know that Friday evening the live stream was pretty short just because we weren't able to screen the documentary on the live stream just due to copyright. Um I also wanted to say that um like we're really grateful for everyone who supported the event by donating and just by showing up as well. Um I think our assessment of the event in the past week is that this was really an historic event. not just not really for the free school but also for the people of Philadelphia and ultimately for the United States and 
I guess we can get into actually understanding like in depth the assessment of it. And we'd also love to hear people's thoughts, whether they watch on live stream, but also people in free school since this was um, a free school conference. But um, yeah, I think in terms of, I guess we can start with what were the initial political aims of the event, just so we can have a gauge for understanding how the event, like what the actual outcome was and what we are taking away from it and learning from it for our future, future stuff in free school. Um, but I think with this event, we were trying to do several things, one of which was to see if we could reach Korean Americans in particular, um, but also to see if we could reach you know, broader sections of just ordinary people in Philadelphia. Um, and I think building on that, we really wanted to, um, I think the way that Emily put it was to put Korea in this constellation of a larger framework and question, a very urgent question of war and peace. And to use Korea almost as a opening to bring people into a um, very rich discussion um, and engaging with each other around this question of peace. And I almost saw it as a kind of, and I think Doc said this as well, but it almost a kind of like scientific endeavor where you, you know, you, we put ourselves out there as the free school, we're putting out a framework, we're putting out a vision. We see who comes, we see who engages with it, um, both online, but especially in person. And, um, and yeah, I think that, I almost see it as like, we have this hypothesis that, you know, a true, like a genuine peace movement, which can emerge, but this broader framework of, of the, the need for peace, especially for Americans to take up this question of the need for peace, that this itself can facilitate new kinds of social relations amongst the American people, especially at a time when so many Americans are ultimately distrustful of the ruling class, as we've already been discussing today and throughout the free school in the past couple months. And that, you know, the question of war and peace is ultimately a question of democracy. And in a situation where, you know, the ruling class of this country is so determined to ultimately wage wars of regime change against Russia, against China, against North Korea, against many other countries, this is a policy which can ultimately, which places all of humanity in danger of nuclear war. And how is it that this can be decided by a handful of ruling elites and that the US people have no say in it whatsoever? What is the, like, what is the capacity of the American people to actually come together and to actually decide on their own terms what should be the future of this country in relationship to humanity? What are the responsibilities of Americans towards the rest of humanity? And how can we actually bring that to the forefront um, and ultimately set, kind of expand the democratic capacity of the American people to fight for peace and to fight to rejoin humanity. Um, and so that's kind of like our, our framing, what we were kind of thinking about go, going into the event, but especially going um, coming out of it. Um, yeah, there's a lot, I think that like maybe amongst ourselves, we've been kind of turning over in our heads and talking amongst each other in terms of that. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with how the event turned out. And I think that I really feel that the lessons we learned from this event can serve as fuel and serve and basically provide new insights for the kind of work that we're doing in the free school. 
um, and that this also yields new insights about ultimately the quality of the change, like the kind of changing quality of the American people as a whole, which is helpful and useful for anyone who sees himself as a revolutionary and wants to be part of changing this country for the better. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I can just start it with that. But I know that many people have many, I'm really interested to hear people's thoughts um, just from engaging with the event, being part of organizing, organizing the art exhibit, which um, we're hoping to release um, just kind of a, a view of that art exhibit for people online soon. Um, but yeah, just the overall event. I'm really excited to hear what other people's um, own thoughts and kind of conclusions that they drew from it. I was going to wait to hear if Nuri wanted to say something. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. I've been sick the last few days, so I'm not as mentally clear. But yeah, I think like the first point of reaching Korean Americans, I think was not really a numbers question of trying to attract like 400 Korean people to the event. Um, because I think going into the event, like, Doc and Anna and Jeremiah and I had talked a lot about, you know, where are Korean Americans at? Like politically, like, do they even see themselves as politically engaged in Korea or in America? Um, and I feel like the overall sense that we got of the landscape was that people have a lot of baggage about the Korean War, about North Korea. And there's not very much, I think, ideological clarity but the thing is, is that that didn't stop us. Like that can't stop us from the purpose, which is that we want to, we want to reach out. We want to give people an opportunity and we want to like go down this path together. Because when we talk about the new American people, it includes Korean Americans. And we thought that maybe a way to actually, I guess, move beyond just like baggage or pain or personal trauma and like the, the historical experience that people have gone is like to actually be able to use it for the future to build peace mm -hmm. to like be a strong voice and an example of why peace is so necessary mm -hmm. like for america but also for the world and so yeah i think that was sort of the outlook that we had going into it and we i think we always knew that not everybody was going to be immediately supportive but doing outreach yeah it was interesting to see how some people were I guess like ambivalent, some were more supportive, but there's wide, yeah, there is actually wide diversity amongst Korean Americans. And I think that that gets, um, like it can be underestimated because I think some of the nonprofit organizations, there was much less response, mm -hmm. um, like in terms of the official, like institutional outreach that we did via email and like social media, there was much less response, but we still did a lot of outreach in like restaurants and cafes like just postering and flyering. And I would say that most of the people who came to the event came as a result of seeing the flyer. Mm -hmm. Like they came either as a result of literally just walking around like their campus or their neighborhood and seeing the flyer and being like, oh, I want to come to this. Or as a result of like us personally inviting people that we knew. Um, and all of the Korean people who came to the event, I think were very struck by it. Um, they're, they're like, for one thing, like a repeated comment that we got was like, I'm amazed that such an event is happening in America mm -hmm. when like 
people who have lived in Korea, I think are used to like a certain like Korean valence of like these politics. And so there is a Korean man who came from Penn um, and he said that it was his first time like seeing something like this in America, like basically like Americans talking about like the South Korean democratization movement, talking mm -hmm. about the fight for peace. Um, and he was trying to, I think, understand the free school. And I think a lot of the Koreans came and they were like, oh, like, what is the free school? It's not all Korean people. Like, there's clearly like a wide, a wide coalition, like a wide group of people who are also mm -hmm. like serious about peace. And I think that, you know, the free school is not necessarily an easy entity <laughs> to immediately grasp. But I think that it opened something up in them where I think it was kind of like, oh, like, I can't just monopolize Korea or peace for myself. And why should I want to? Like, it's better that this is like a gift, I think, for everybody to discuss. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that was the overall, I think, response that we got. And I think in planning the event, like we had been concerned that maybe people would show up with a lot of anti-communism in tow and want to, I guess, steer the conversation towards fighting on their terms. But I think that actually the event only really drew people who were sincere and willing to engage and right. were actually quite right. moved. Because um, everybody, I think we got a lot of like messages of like support and like, thank you after the event. Like, thank you for doing this. Like, thank you for, I guess, like showing us, I guess, Korea in like a global context yeah. and things like that. And yeah. I'm really looking forward to yeah, the future because people had also asked like oh like if the free school is doing any events in the future like please yeah. let me know like they want to know so in that sense i actually think it was really good yeah can i just quickly add to what Nuri's saying sorry I, um one of the things that we were realizing as the event was unfolding especially after friday night when we screened that documentary is that Americans, not even necessarily Koreans, but just Americans of many different backgrounds, but especially like black people, I think, but just broader sections of people in Philadelphia are very interested in the history of Korea. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's worth to kind of dig into what is producing or generating that interest and just curiosity, not about Korea as kind of like just an ancient, obviously an ancient civilization, but also what the US government has done in Korea over the past 70 years. And they're interested in it, not out of a sense of guilt, I think, but because ultimately, like it's because they want to know humanity, I think. Like they want to know this part of humanity, which their own government has prevented them from being in actual genuine contact with since America has become like the leading imperialist power in the world. And I think another thing about like what Nuri was saying is that part of the reason, actually one of the conclusions that you were a, a hypothesis you could make is that like for the Korean, the fact that we didn't encounter kind of Koreans who were very hard line anti-communist is that th that's because like those kinds of people didn't come. And it's not that, I don't think that we're against, you know, engaging in dialogue with anybody. Like we want to engage with dialogue with anyone who wants to engage in dialogue with us. But one of the, the kind of conclusions you can draw from that in a concrete way is that anti-communism basically conditions people to be against actual, like to be against struggle, to be not open to struggle and to be ultimately not open to engaging with 
the full capacity and potential of the American people and American society, which they are part of, and instead makes people more insular and more withdrawn into their own kind of cultural life worlds and especially amongst the Korean community. And I think that, yeah, I think I'm just now realizing like that something like anti-communism, like how that can actually manifest, not even in terms of just a pushback to our event, but the fact that I think certain people who didn't show up, um, like how that can manifest, but, but yeah. Yeah, well, cause I think part of what I think was really good in the event was that everything that we put out we were not defensive, right? Like we were not right. defensive about like perceived anti-communism. Like right. I think we were trying our best to just be principled mm -hmm. where this is like, the, these are the principles. And the fact is, is that like, you can't understand anything about North Korea if you're going at it from like a fundamental lens of anti-communism. Like you will never be able to understand, I think the currents that are going on in the world or even in America, if you have on these blinders. And yeah, I think this thing of anti-communism being like, fundamentally just against like open dialogue like honest discussion I think is something that like came out through the yeah. event too mm -hmm. um yeah because I think I yeah through this event I think I was also really amazed by how not impossible it was to like cast anti-communism aside like I think that it's something that the American people like absolutely like are capable of and are ready to do um mm -hmm. yeah like there was really like everybody was just so excited to learn mm -hmm. and it's not to say like everything was like happy happy and like there were no disagreements or like no like bumps in the road but I just feel like there was a certain groundwork of like principle that was laid down which was really significant um yeah Yeah, I was, uh, you know, um, we went to a film showing on Wednesday and uh, it was a film about, it's called Crossing and it's about uh, an attempt of uh, an international group of women peace advocates trying to cross from North Korea into South Korea as a gesture of uh, unity and at least uniting families that have been divided because of the Korean War. But um, the thing that was so uh, moving for me was the great goodwill shown towards the free school by a lot of people who attended this film showing and had heard about the event and um, uh, just such tremendous goodwill. I won't name names, but the goodwill was just uh, so palpable, so uh, much there. But I'd said to, I, was, I had the privilege of working with Nuri and Jeremiah and Anna on this. And uh, although I have to congratulate you all on the tremendous amount of work that you put into it and how it was almost a perfect event. Uh, everything was done so well, the art exhibit, and that was a first time um, uh, showing Korean civilization. And 
you know, I, I can assure you, I learned so much and other people learn so much, if nothing else, that Korea went from the Chinese script to a Korean script for writing Korean. It was so impressive. And the history of Buddhism and Confucianism and up to the present or the near present and such, um, that exhibit uh, attracted a lot of excitement uh, by people who were there. And that was so moving just to see it and observe people and hear people uh, give feedback about that. Um, I know Purba and Kathy, and I don't know who else was so involved. It was so professionally done. I, it's just unbelievable. And then, of course, the food was fantastic. It was unbelievable. And I usually don't like to go to Korean restaurants. You know, I like when, when Anna and Jerry and Nuri cook. But this was fantastic, and everybody enjoyed it. Then, of course, the drummers and dancers, the children and the older people. And in fact, when assessing how much we have reached into the Korean American community, we cannot forget the school of Korean drumming and dancing and their enthusiasm and generosity towards us and their interest in the free school. But I think, you know, I think the thing that was so important is the worldview that we adopted going into this. And this is what was new, that to talk about the present and the, you know, and, and the Korean War and Japanese and American occupation, you have to contrast that with Korean civilization. And once, and you know, how do, how do I put this? you see this ancient civilization that is being threatened by U.S. nuclear and military encirclement of it. And what will be lost if we lose Korean civilization? So the emphasis upon a civilization of peace and the second pillar was the American people, of which Korean Americans are an integral part. Korean civilization, Korean Americans, as part of, an, of this people that is and must remake itself in the name of peace and a new civilization. Of course, the appeal is a perfect, I, this is me too, a perfect document. It, you know, and it, it says that young people, people of your generation 
have the intellectual capacity to produce great political understanding. This was so, I mean, you know, I, I, I often say, you know, as, as I often say, you know, there are a lot of people who for all kinds of reasons call themselves boycotting events that the free school does. Are there all kinds of reasons? There's the woke crowd who doesn't like our politics. And then, of course, the anti-communist who say you can't do nothing and why even try? But what they are boycotting in the end, I would say, is themselves. They're not boycotting us because, and I agree with Nuri, what you said, what we have done resonates. And I saw it when we went to the film showing. Uh, a warmth towards us that even people who were at the event, they were not as warm towards us at the event as they were at the film showing, you know, which meant that, you know, they saw and, and even I believe they recognized that the free school event elevates the discussion, elevates the fight for unity. And said, I, I think one of the things it said is how valuable Korea is, Korean civilization is, and how valuable Korean Americans are. It's kind of saying you don't have to hide in corners of just Korea, that the American people and we in the free school will fight for an America where Korea and Koreans are valued. Mm. Um, I, can I just say a couple things? You know, about five people drove up from Washington, D.C. And, you know, I know, I knew, I know most, I know them, and um, Garland Nixon spoke. And, you know, what, what they have said to me over and over again is how much uh, they enjoyed and respected what was done on that day. Uh, Emily's parents drove down from Massachusetts and for the first time, and, and others, you know, that drove up from Washington, they got a firsthand experience of who the free school is, you know, what it's made up of, you know, how it does things. Um, I, I just think that it was a perfect event. It was a landmark for the city of Philadelphia, maybe for the nation to think in these terms. Um, it was, and I, I think, I still think the appeal, by the way, as I looked at the film on Wednesday, uh, I, and listened to Gloria Steinem speak and uh, others, I said to myself that they could have benefited from reading the appeal 
Uh, and just one last thing I, I want to say. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we talked about this a lot in the planning, the question of how would we treat North Korea? And this is what Nuri is talking about, anti-communism. And we, we were not certain because we wanted to appeal, especially to Korean young people. And we know the, you know, the ghost of anti-communism, of anti-North Korea is palpable. You can almost feel it, smell it, touch it, you know. And it was Nuri who said eventually after several different weeks of us trying to go through this, she said, no, we cannot, I think this is the way she put it, we cannot not deal in a principled way with North Korea, which led us to the discussion of Chu Che and um, and all of that, which um, which said at the end of the day that you cannot talk about peace and reunification of the Korean Peninsula and have in the back of your mind, we want to bring about regime change in North Korea. Unification and peace on the Korean Peninsula means respecting the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the path of modernization taken by North Korea. Yeah. There is no two ways about it. So all of that, I, I thought it was magnificent. Uh, it, it took me, you know, I'm still recovering from it. The excitement, the emotion of it. I mean, it was for no reason that people shed tears, you know? And these were sincere feelings um, about the struggle of the Korean people, the great struggle of the Korean people, and how, you know, I, just my last point, how the fight for democracy in South Korea is linked to the fight for peace and for the recognition of the, the government of North Korea mm -hmm. as a legitimate a part of the world community of nations mm. and that its path to progress is legitimate and successful. This is what is so striking. In spite of everything, the people of North Korea have built a society, a modern society, which they are capable and willing to defend. I mean, just like, I think that the, I was excited for the North Korea event um, because, you know, like with everything that we do in preschool, <laughs> I get excited about things that I <laughs> don't laugh at me. I don't uh, the things that I don't know, and that I feel like uh, it opens up doors to helping understand like the things that actually 
people should know <laughs> because what I don't know now is more representative of things that I um, like aren't being told or it, it isn't told. The story of North Korea is not told nope. um, to the American people, to young people. Um, but yeah, I, you're right in the fact that we're legitimizing like um, progressive, uh, like an essential qualities of the world peace movement mm -hmm. and how without like, like what I think was important about the event is that the that North Korea is a part of the world. Yes. And not separate from it. Yes. And I was just reading through the appeal as you were speaking and like the question of peace or like the definition, like to define peace, like what does peace mean? It was also written in the appeal, like peace without the absence, what was it? It was the King quote. Yeah. Peace um, is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice, something to that. Yeah. Um, and it's again, like, like that point that you're making, Doc, like the American people and like um, North Korea, like there's that uh, resonance and like the, what's the right word? Like the thing that is most like essential to it like the peace movement has everything to do with King, has everything to do with um, North Korea. But I think Interesting. that, no, um, no, it's cool. I Because I was also given the, because on the civilization panel, um, I was excited about that. And I had to, I was able to discuss that with uh, Emily, Nuri and Anna and I think that also had to do, or like it's, it had another core quality to like the event. It, to me, it felt like it was an important question, like why civilization? Right. Um, and why does peace, why the question of peace? Um, or like this whole thing about moving into another epoch yes. is um, hand in glove with the civilization piece because mm -hmm. I think like North Korea mm -hmm. like almost like it was like the thing that helped save uh, or keep civilization in Korea you know like um I just feel like that um or a similar thing with how when we learn about like Black Reconstruction or King like there's like this essential thing of like the civilization of the people is being protected. Um, but I just wanted to start with that. It just might feel a little bit. I'm still, I'm still kind of shaky on it because I'm a little also getting over kind of a cold, but I don't need to sound unclear about it. I think what I'm saying is that, like, uh, like without North Korea, I don't know. I'll see what other people respond to it. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, first, I I'm also getting, I, I just got over COVID, so excuse my, 
<laughs> my <laughs> mistakes. No, I'm just I do. I, I do regret not being there because of getting uh, COVID. And, but uh, it was. I was very uh, fortunate to watch the live streams and uh, uh, follow it closely. And uh, I think also looking back at the appeal as we were discussing it and the, some of the major themes of the event, like particularly this thing of uh, civilization. And I think, you know, when we were talking about civilization, we're also bringing it into this discussion of democracy and modernization and the anti-colonial movement. And then we were talking about the American people. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, soon after the event, there was this uh, uh, statement by President Xi, which I know a number of people here have seen about basically precisely this thing of civilization and a world of that can have the unity of different civilizations and uh, different civilizations can have the should have the right to peaceful coexistence so that they can determine their own paths to modernization and democracy. And so I think this event was very significant in basically bringing this, anticipating this, and then trying to bring the American people uh, in line with the way that the world is, th is, is thinking, especially these rising uh, counter hegemonic and democratic forces like we've been discussing, like People's Republic of China. And so I think for that reason, it was a very valuable contribution. And it's basically it shows that free school is thinking in line with how humanity is thinking and rejecting the way that the, you know, uh, Western intelligentsia is, you know, trying to get distract people into non issues. Uh, so I think it was very significant for that reason. Um, yeah, I wanted to say, like, yeah, I think this was a, it was a very, um, I think, well thought out and clear event. And, you know, just like, starting from how it was framed, it was like, we are talking about um, reunification. But, you know, I think it was clarifying because it was framed in such a way that, you know, you cannot talk about reunification without talking about US imperialism. And I think that was, um, you know, set in stone from the start. And like, I think what I'm trying to get at is like, you know, this, this question of, and I think this was also, I think I've been thinking about this probably since last year's Korea Vietnam event, where, you know, this question was brought out about who the enemy is and the importance of identifying that. And I think in this event that was, you know, developed, uh, I mean, even further, like we are talking about US imperialism from the start and the path to peace. And I think, uh, like from the very start, the first panel itself, it set the picture that, you know, we are talking about modernity and civilization, but then the question of, you know, like why this event is being done here and the importance of, I guess the importance of, you know, black America in understanding who the enemy is, you know, to understand the ruling class ideology in America, but also of course, all over the world because of, of the position of the United States elsewhere. I thought, I think this is a, yeah, I thought this is a very important, uh, I mean, a part of this question to be made clear. And I think like this question of reunification, I mean, you know, this is also in the context of, you know, India, because India was also partitioned. This was, this has like, you know, I think this is brought out in many circles. Uh, like, you know, we are talking about reunification and to talk about, you know, undoing partition, so to speak, but I don't think 
um, you can go anywhere without an analysis okay. of imperialism. And yeah, I think this was made very clear from the start. The other thing I wanted to say was, yeah, I really like what Jeremiah said at the beginning about um, anti-communism and the fact that, you know, people who are motivated by um, such an ideology were not present or, you know, are not present in, in the struggle at all. And I think it clarifies in terms of, you know, what the corresponding theories of today are like in the corresponding ruling class ideologies of today, like, you know, for instance, settler colonialism and so on, which essentially is an idea to, you know, demobilize the people. You're not, you know, you are not called to any kind of meaningful action or to be part of any shared struggle if you are already, I mean, a sort of, uh, I mean, taken in by such ideologies. I thought that's a, I think that's an important thing in terms of you know, understanding what like you know, the modern such ideologies are because anti-communism i don't know if that's as much of uh like as much of a winning ideology as it used to be in in, in the mccarthy era but there are you know other equivalents today which we have to identify to move forward um, yeah well, I also wanted to add that, you know, talking about the Korean War, it's important to remind people what was done to the people of Korea. I mean, a scale that's not comparable to anything else, you know, I mean, well, okay, I'm not, <laughs> but, you know, just to keep, remind what was done to Korea and how that is not just a burden that the Korean people have to carry, but the American people have to carry through no fault of their own. And what it does to the soul of America to be what, you know, to be the country or, you know, whose ruling class is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Um, that was like, you know, just even researching or going through the process of helping out with the exhibition. I mean, it's it was so moving and emotional because that's where everything starts in some some ways with korea and that's also the start of you know us's vicious warmongering but it's also the start of this broad peace movement which brought the world closer to one another with that common aspiration for peace and justice and also how the exhibition brought this out but also the appeal and the discussions that followed through the panels and the community discussion that North Korea should be viewed as an as a shining example of what the spirit of human beings can achieve even when you're like absolutely decimated as a people uh, what you can build back because you have you know that kind of faith in the people and I mean you contrast this to how North Korea is like you know accessible to the world at large today. I mean, I knew very little about North Korea before uh, these events, like last year, but also this one in particular brought out, you know, what exactly they did to build back after being beaten to the ground. And why is that? Why shouldn't children of the world be taught about this, like, you know, glorious example of human accomplishment? And instead of portraying them as, you know, this sort of demonic, uh, <laughs> you know, state, with its leader being vilified, but also humiliated by making fun of him all the time, Kim Jong-un. Um, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that constantly since the conference, and I think it's a huge contribution. Yeah, I thought it was deep that they also study on Saturdays. 
<laughs> we have a day of work on Sundays, but um, I think just getting to see it, getting to see the North Korean people is such an act of defiance, you know, and just how like I was just struck by how beautiful they are. And I was just thinking, what do you need to live a good life? You need purpose. You need the chance to study. And you just, you know, you just you just need like a, a sense of connection to your people and to the world. Um, which they really had. And just that's also the thing. You don't see Koreans like that in America. Um, and Korean Americans don't get to see Koreans like that, who are just so unapologetic. And yeah, I mean, it's I thought it was really important. Also, I mean, yeah, the, the whole K-pop phenomenon, it's just so reactionary. It's so reactionary because it's all like in defiance of this and even the Korean defectors, the way that they talk, you know, and, and this this aspiration to whiteness. Um, it just just seeing that documentary really broke through. And I thought the roundtable discussion was so rich, so rich because you saw people coming coming from so many different, you know, ways of discourse and thinking and you all really just brought them together you know, and asked and asked the very difficult questions also, like, you just went there. I mean, it's the example of what political discourse should be, how it should be. Um, and so it was good also to see people coming from outside of free school. And I was just thinking, how will they be affected by free school? You know, and the way we think, the way, you know, like, um, Garland Nixon, I mean, he was talking a lot about Lenin. And I was like, well, look at the way we're talking about King and Du Bois um, to understand all this. And, you know, what do you make of all this? And, but also it is a process, like Doc was saying, that you, you felt the warmth later, but I feel like you're planting seeds in people's consciousness so that they can, it's, it, it is definitely the beginning of a very uh, long process and also a continuation of a process. Should I go ahead? Okay. Um, so I actually, in a way, was very glad that I went to watch this Crossings documentary because after watching the documentary, I really appreciated the Korean conference a lot more, a lot more, um, which I didn't think was possible. But it, <laughs> but, but you know, it really go like. One thing I was mentioning before to uh, Alice and Tromborto is that um, the structuring of the entire event from panel one to panel two to the roundtable discussion was was very impressive because the the panel one added so much to the ground to the you know the foundation of whatever we're trying to learn. After hearing everybody on the first panel, it it really enhanced the second panel. You sort of um, thought about things a little differently after hearing people on the first panel. It really did. Um, I really did enjoy that. And it really goes to show the effort and thought that went into this entire uh, program and its organization. So um, I'm very thankful for that. And um, apart from that, I really uh, like I enjoyed the documentary quite a lot uh, and again as everybody said the 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 most touching parts of the documentary are 
you know, looking at these North Korean people and seeing how how f- filled with potential they are and how beautiful they are. And, you know, when you, when you sort of contrast that, when you contrast the children of North Korea to the children of, uh, say, America, where we are burdened with debt and uh, lack of education, and over in North Korea, they have a children's palace <laughs> where they treasure their future, which are the children, you know. And I really thought that, and I told this, but Nuri's presentation on civilization, which sort of set everything in motion, which yes. was just so good, was incredible. Uh, and thank you for that, Nuri. Um, and even when, even the way that, and, you know, hats off to everybody who wrote all the captions for uh, the exhi- exhibition. Um, I was in tears by halfway through and, and, and filled with hope by the end of it, you know. Actually, yeah. Gurush, I think you're uh, enabling me to think about, like, because, or uh, like, why I was saying about the first panel and like why civilization was so important is because and why even what what I mean by like well North Korea protected civilization like protected the the life world and the basis in which the peace movement also anchors itself like this you know like and in terms and in the same vein like the the term like world democracy or like um, they're all in vain of like the movement of peace, like the peace movement. What is the purpose of the peace movement? Is to actualize the potential of the people right. and all civilizations and in particularities of their civilizations, mm-hmm. meaning like China, Russia, Korea, Africa, India, and the Americas all have like the essential like qualities towards like peace and like these like these there's these different values that people have there's differences in cultures there's differences in like religion and time and things like that but like i think the question of civilization has to do with like this you know determination like the will of the people like um the actualization of society like I think our conversation has everything to do with this question because we're talking about like how can the world shift from like the white um, social system towards like humanity? How can the world not be on finance and this fake debt and like this war economy, but actually be on like the basis of humanity, the like the substance of like our world and our soil and like this is it's like different. It's, it's shifting. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Chakni. Like, it shifts our mindset, our worldview, um, or the question of civilization shifts our worldview um, from, like, a very... Could, could you elaborate? The, the emphasis upon civilization shifts our worldview. What, could you explain Like, I mean, bit? like, us talking about how 
the world can be founded upon humanity, mm-hmm. like founded upon how, like, uh, shifts how we, like, how we value and, um, I guess, proceed upon, like, act upon. And I think the example of mm-hmm. North Korea shows this exact point because North Korea is in, is, or like, North Korea, right? is a situation that happened or or was produced in response to like war and colonialization. But Korea as a civilization is something that is just like ancient, that, that was already there, similar to like Africa and like the study of Africa, like that is a civilization that existed prior to colonialization and like US, you know, regime or whatever you want to call it. And so like, like similar to i was thinking about alice's presentation about like the south korean democratization movement Mm -hmm. and how that was also important because it's also saying like well south korea is a part of north korea north korea is a part of south korea like the entire um and what that means is that the south korean people are a part of the essential and revolutionary aspects of north korea that north korea also keep and have held on to this whole time um and similar to like jeremiah's presentation because he told like a really interesting story i never read north korean stories before but i just thought like it was so beautiful and exciting because it showed me that like you know yes our stories even if they are folk, are so similar, like are so like personable and human. Um, and it's just like, that's really amazing because it seems like even if it's like, it's it's in a whole nother language, why would it be similar to me, you know? But it has everything to do with me. Um, so, but that was also resonating in my mind as you were talking, Shantanu, because like what we're also saying by civilization is not like, like, this abstract thing or this like academic thing, but that all humanities, like the basis of humanity is upon like this ancient civilization that is to be respected and not to be trampled over or bought out or sold or anything. It should be kept, justly kept and protected and stood by. And like, I'm like, I'm Korean means more than just like, I have this identity or like I'm a black person means more than my like skin tone or anything like that. Because in in addition to us saying like, you know, America, and in addition to our study of like black reconstruction, like what is America? Like what is the essential values? Um, what is our history? Um, what do we stand by? And again, like when we're saying King and we stand by King, we stand by Du Bois and Paul Robeson, like. That's a, it's the same thing of like, well, we stand by North Korea. We're not going to be afraid by standing by North Korea. And right. I think like the question of anti-communism has more to do with how really, where do you stand on what side of the peace movement do you stand upon? <laughs> like, are you going to, like, is it about like how, is it, is it, it's, it's more about like the time, like, are we gonna still feel like we did 
like wrong or there's this is is this, what I'm trying to formulate or what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. is like what is more important right now you mm-hmm. know at the end of the day mm-hmm. um and I think North Korea, like us standing by North Korea showing it um like showing how it developed and all that and celebrating it has everything to do with what we as the American people need today, which is clarity upon the peace question, clarity upon our relationship with other people in the world, like North Korea, Russia, and China. Um, And that's what that event, that's what the event does did. Yeah. Just to add, I think, um, oh, sorry, were you going to No, I just have a small comment to add on to what Serafina was saying. I just wanted to say that the first panel on civilization and modernity was very clarifying because this thing that was made clear that you don't think of civilization in terms of ancient history, but as an indicator of the way the people are moving, their, you know, a manifestation of their deepest aspirations and the core values that they hold dear. That's very clarifying because then it also lets you see that peace has to be a bedrock of civilization wherever it exists. And through that framework, you know, civilization cannot be in America. Civilization cannot be associated with the forces of imperialism and war, but it has to be associated with King and Du Bois and Robeson and this revolution of values. And yeah, I think that's 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 what Chantanu was also saying. Once you set up that framework, then everything from that point on uh, you know, has to be has to be viewed with that lens uh, in mind. Um, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, just to add to the conversation, I think Nuri had mentioned this, but we did not want to approach North Korea from a defensive standpoint. We did not want to approach Korea from a defensive standpoint. There are already many leftist groups in the U.S. who do that, and we're not trying to do that. And instead, what we're trying to show is that in Korea's history, especially in its modern history of the past 100 years, you see kernels of human problems, but also kernels of human solutions, which resonate with the people of the United States. And um, actually, I think like that thing about the human solutions is like from Doc and when you were talking about Henry Winston with uh, the Midwestern Marx guys. Like how Henry Winston would always say, like every pro- every human problem has a human solution, and um, that's what we're really trying to show, especially with the North, is when you leave aside all of this baggage of the propaganda that the West is trying to impose on its people about the people of North Korea in order to justify their own war war agenda against Korea. You know, you see, yeah, you see just this glimpse of of human beings who have been able to achieve something. And it's worth understanding what those people have achieved because they're not outside the pale of humanity. They are actually an integral part of humanity. And um, the other thing that I think was raised, as others have said, with the um, the documentary screening on Wednesday, which we attended, the, the crossing screening, was that when you see people like, yeah, like Gloria Steinem or Medea Benjamin, who basically their motive for seeking peace and reunification in Korea is essentially, as Dog said, ultimately to try to implement regime change because you want to open up the door to detente between the Koreas in order to influence North Korea to make it more democratic. You know, that kind of attitude of thinking that you have everything to teach the North Koreans about quote unquote democracy 
um, and that you think you know better than the North Koreans is that's the same attitude that so many activists in the United States have towards the American people. All of this reflects back on how people view the United States and what the American people are capable of. Um, and yeah, the last thing I wanted to say is that I, yeah, I think the, the first panel was really important for me just in terms of clarifying as others have said, but in part because what we were also trying to do with this event is also to make a case for the Du Boisian King worldview mm -hmm. because you can, it's like the way, like even like this whole framing of civilization and modernity, we got it from Black Reconstruction. We got it specifically from the way that Du Bois says America had a chance during the Reconstruction period to achieve a new stage of human civilization, which is defined by the rule of the, ma the mass of ordinary men which has not been achieved before in human history. And, um, you know, in a similar way, King at the very beginning of the civil rights movement says, we have a chance to inject morality into the veins of humans of civilization. And in this, and, you know, the both of those were basically rev revolutionary periods of America's history. And people like Du Bois and King understand it as a not just a crisis of the civilization, but a chance to achieve a new, a new stage of human civilization within the United States, which has repercussions for the rest of the world. And, um, and yeah, I think that that is important, especially in this time, because, you know, whether it's the Korean people, whether it's in China or Russia, you know, Xi Jinping's global civilization initiative that was brought up earlier, this is a time in which other peoples of the world are seeing this as a chance to basically achieve a new, like a new modernity for humanity, which is defined by a kind of inter-civilizational like framework, an inter-civilizational dynamic in which not just all civilizations are seen as equal, but also each civilization has its own, can chart out its own destiny in free contact with the rest of humanity. Um, and yeah, I think that's ex like, that shows exactly why it was important for us to frame it in that way, because we think that you know, the American people today have that chance again to achieve, to achieve that kind of civilization that was promised and was shown in its potentiality during these past stages of America's revolutionary history. Um, and so, yeah, I was just thinking about that in relation to what other people were saying. Yeah, because I think it also shows like the strength of the Du Boisian and Kingian worldview that we have because yeah, I feel like part of like going into the event, I think one fundamental purpose or goal was to basically show like King makes sense with Korea, like to understand Korea, like we actually really need King, which is something that Emily had said. And like there is a solution that you can find in like King's worldview and the things that he said in Du Bois. And so when I was writing like the civilization and modernity presentation, like I was going entirely basically off of Du Bois, King and Robeson. Like I had checked out these other books from the library of like, I guess like Huntington and like Toynbee, but I didn't have any time to look at them. But in the end, like it was based entirely off of King, Du Bois and Robeson. And then after the event, when I was reading about that Xi Jinping Global Civilization Initiative, that transcript, like I think it was published March 16th. So it was like one or two days before our event. And I think I was really struck by how in sync we were like not me, but literally like King and Du Bois with what Xi Jinping is saying. And I think part of it is that in in like our 
I guess our political practice and the work that we're doing, it's not just bringing like Korea to America, but also like, yeah, bringing America in line with like what else humanity has. And I think one of the lines in, in the appeal was that the ruling class wants Americans to be afraid of the things that they don't know. But if we can know, like there is, there's no reason to be afraid. Like we too have something through King and Du Bois that we can also contribute back to humanity. Like we can rejoin humanity and actually be part of this great, like future moving like movement. Um, and yeah, I think it, it really shows how much like Martin Luther King Jr. like really is the father of this new nation and like is the figure for this time. And like that coupled with like Du Bois's social science, like literally like social science, social development, human action, like it's the key to the American revolutionary process. Um, mm -hmm. And like, I feel like in that vein, it was also really cool coming through the black reconstruction event to this. Cause I feel like we got to put a lot of the ideas that we were working with through black reconstruction and like address it to the American people through the question of war and peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nur, I think, oh, sorry, was someone else gonna say something? Um, you know, in the earlier parts of our conversation today, we were talking about how the world is changing. There's this creative energy that's going on in Asia and Africa and not in the West. Instead, I think people here feel a sense of hopelessness and pessimism about the world. And they don't, they don't know what is to come out of it. And I think for us at the free school, you know, there was a phrase that Serafina used that I really liked, which was an excavation of the truth. Like here facing what we face here, how do we excavate the truth about the world, but also about America? And I think that's what we were trying to accomplish through the event, which is, you know, North Korea, like the most demonized country in the world. Like what is actually being hidden? Why is it being hidden from us? And what can we learn from the North Korean people and the North Korean states? But even similarly, North Korea, not just as North Korea, but as a representation of what the Korean people as a unit were striving for. Um, and, you know, in my presentation, like just so moved by the people and also the youth of the time, you know, the, the phrase that Im Soo-kyung has said, like, I will dedicate my youth. And that was such an inspiration also for me because like, what is the task also for us in America as well, as young people, as young people facing such like terrible or um, a Goliath, I guess the, the best way I can think of is a Goliath, like a Goliath, a behemoth that is so oppressing at times and telling people that there is no future that you can hope for or um, a positive world that you can hope for um, and work towards. But that's also why I think the excavation of the truth piece was both on in terms of the world, but also in America. Yeah. What is this foundation that we talk about in the free school? What is this tradition in America that can help us unite with the rest of the world in this creative synthesis of what the future can look like? Um, and I forgot, there was another piece of what I was trying to say, but I'm forgetting. Um, but 
Yeah, I'm going to pass it to Emily first because I'm brain farting. <laughs> um, I kind of forget what I was going to say too, but I, I'm sorry I missed a bunch of this assessment because I had to take a phone call. But so I'm sorry if I also repeat things that people said, but I thought the Cree event was such a success. And I guess I'll start out with my parents, like how much it meant to me that my parents came. And but also that I was surprised because I was a little worried, actually, at first. I was like, oh, they're not going to like they're not going to be like want to be here, all this stuff. But I actually think they it really moved them. And even though I don't think they like processed it as quickly as maybe I processed things like days after they returned home, like my mom watched the documentary that we watched that she wasn't able to do it with us. And she talked to me about how much it reminded her of herself and her own family. Like it made her reflect on things that I don't think she's ever reflected on after being in this country. And then I think it also spurred some national pride for my dad, where he was like, because the event really was, there's like from the beginning, it's also a deep sense of the pride, like the civilization Korea had, the Korean people have, and the pride we have that we are the people, we are the men and women who make history. Like out of nothing, being bombed, facing the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, we have made a new society. And we are making new children, new human beings here. Um, and you can't take that away from us. I feel like it like spurred some national pride in my dad where he was like, but don't forget about like me and China, like Chinese, like we gave our people to help Korea because at the end of the day, it's like the Korean war, like there's something really important to remember about that the Korean war meant so much to darker humanity, just like the Vietnam war meant. It was a, like, it's humanity versus an imperialist power. And there's something so important about like Korea, still not reunified, but here you have a people who will keep that spirit going and the hopes that one day in South Korea, the people will successfully be able to like come back together and that we will be able to achieve this nation together the way we were meant to this whole time. And there's something really beautiful about just that. And I completely agree that the Wednesday documentary that we went to crossings about the woman who crossed the DMC was really illuminating for me too, where I realized I was like, I just don't think that like, I, I think it's in a lot of ways you guys probably said this, but it really makes you think about what would a peace movement in the U S look like, like really peace, not fake peace, not like, negative peace, but what would a real peace movement look like? Because that is the central question of today. It's the question of the American people. If you want to, it's what we talk about when we talk about Trump, Biden, whatever. And like, I think it was so telling that in the film, Gloria Steinem, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink are highlighted, but they're not coming from the fundamental assumption that the North Koreans have achieved something. Mm -hmm. They're coming from the fundamental assumption that the North Koreans need to change to fit south korea or something and that is so different from our event like the appeal says it's like we come from the assumption that the north korean were able to defend a spirit defend civilization to hope to almost like nurture to protect it like a child nurture it so that the next generation and that south koreans will have it for the future and i think i also think about how like king like thinking about america and how important king is and then also like what it means for Korea, 
like when I was writing my presentation at first, it went through so many iterations because I was like, I, from the beginning, I was like, I know that I'm going to use Baldwin. And then I was like, actually, I'm going to use Robeson. And then somewhere like two days before the event, I had called Doc and I was like, yeah, I realized that like Doc made me help me realize. I was like, I don't think I need any of this except King. And I don't even think I need all of King. I think what I really need is just King when he took that stand for peace mm -hmm. against the Vietnam War, where he said, there comes a day where you have to take, when you realize that you have to take a stand against your own government, which doesn't actually reflect the interests, the strivings of the future of your own people. And I was like, Shh, like, that's, that's it. I mean, that's the lasting legacy. And that's exactly what the North Koreans and Kim Il-sung were saying, where they're like, we have to face this enemy. We have to protect our tr revolutionary tradition for our children and for our people, our lost brothers and sisters who are in the South, but who we belong with. And we know that they will be able to come back with us one day. And I was also thinking about how, like, I really believe that the reason why this event was so important is also because in the darkest of times, in America, like I just feel like we talk about all the time, just the ideological confusion, how deliberate it is, how it's like, I think it's some of the worst we've seen in the country, the anti-communism, the way it's rebranded as like communism, the way anti-communism is rebranded as like the left. And then like, it's also like rebranded as like, like black sometimes. And it's, I realized I was like in the darkest of times today, well, at least it in the darkest of times where even King's legacy might be like purposely his legacy and who he really what he really stood for in his words, no matter how much it's people try to wash it down or kill him again and again each year. Like at least we know that the, the North Koreans and the Koreans have been able to protect like a revolutionary tradition that can maybe also remind us of our own. And, yeah. and it's the same thing with, I feel like it's the same thing even with South Korea, where it's like when you yourself, if you are South Korean and you are purposely being bombarded culturally, politically, ideologically by a ruling class that is like fascist and bends to the West, like at least you, can, you will always have king. You will always have king in America who can remind you in South Korea of your revolutionary heritage, one that is humanistic and one that gives you the power to achieve your nation with your brothers and sisters who you belong with in the North. And that's kind of what I've been thinking a lot about and how beautiful that is. Um, I know that was a lot, but it's because I had a lot to say in those 20 minutes I had to leave to take a phone call. And so I'm happy I'm back here and yeah. I'm talking about it. Well, you know what you're saying about like the dark times? I feel like that is really the test. And that's one reason North Korea is so interesting because nobody, I don't think anybody was affected by the collapse of the Soviet Union. As I mean, actually a lot of countries were, but the fact that they stuck their course for the future, you know, the faith in history, I think that makes them really remarkable and also really like a, very much a study something to study for our times because they're kind of they've kind of been preparing for this future for a long time and that resiliency and faith and hope um i mean it does show that there is a moral arc of history you know and you know you have to you have to believe that you have to keep that um faith and keep it going um yeah but uh yeah the yeah <laughs> same thing. 
Yeah, I think that there there's an argument that I've seen made, which is that if it weren't for countries like North Korea or Cuba, the global situation that is as it is currently evolving and manifesting with countries like Russia and China, which had respectively, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and then China's detente with the U.S., that this emergence of a new global order would may not have been fully possible or would have been much more difficult if not for countries like Cuba and North Korea, which had stayed the course um, with their own respective paths of basically commitment to socialism and all of that. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, it's okay if I read some some comments because there's a lot of responses to the event. Um, so where Pilgrim on Facebook says, I saw the live stream, it was very enlightening and engaging. The dance and the dance and drumming performances were a highlight, I think. And then Virginia Cott says, even so-called socialists believe the craziest shit about North Korea and especially about Kim Jong-un. The left questions everything except what the mainstream media tells them. Oh. Uh, or no, no, sorry, the left questions everything the mainstream media tells them except about North Korea. And then Stephen Palmier says, essential questions are being raised by the Saturday Free School. Then Kathy says, it was an incredible honor to work on the exhibit with everyone. And she gives a big thanks to the organizing committee and to her exhibition colleagues, Purba, Nuri, and Manesvi. And then says that we were able to share with everyone the arc of Korean art and civilization, especially the way that North Korea has inherited preserve these contributions for world, for world humanity and to lay the groundwork for a new peaceful international democratic order. I'm looking forward to sharing this as well digitally soon, referring to the art exhibit. And just to note on, on what Kathy was saying, I think something that was very interesting that was revealed through the course of the people who were working on the exhibit is that it's like, this is where it's like, yeah, like we're not, like we're not talking about Korea to be kind of like culturally nationalist. And actually, when you have people who represent and are in tune with different civilizational heritages, you know, they see different things in Korea's long civilizational development that are, that they're able to bring out like different aspects that speak to them about Korea, which we would not have otherwise gotten if it had just been one perspective that had been applied to Korea. But people like Porba and Manasvi, you know, brought an Indian perspective to Korea and Buddhism. And then Kathy brought her own perspective as a Chinese person to Korea. And I think that was what was beautiful, which is that the free school itself also, this is our strength, which is that we really are like a world house of different people who represent different civilizations and different cultures and heritages. And that this is a strength and it's not a weakness. And that through this, we're able to understand new things about other countries and other peoples. Um, and then, so Virginia Codd says, there can be no peace if there's economic exploitation. Um, and basically asks again, can there be peace in the presence of poverty, in the presence of inequality? And then Shade says, Serafina, your, your response is very clear. I think what you said about how one's lack of knowledge is a reflection of their own nation's purposeful suppression of true historical education is evident in our country. And that's what makes the Korea event such an open door to the possibility of peace. Even just having conversations like these, um, like the ones you're all saying, without demonizing communism is impossible for some people, but the first step is unsanitizing struggle. A common theme in my own personal life when speaking with others about the capacity to struggle is that people do not think that they should have to struggle, but reality already forces one to do so. 
Um, we're in the, we are very manipulated into these practices of individualism. Um, and so we think that collective effort is not worth it. What does that say about the greater good of humanity? Um, Christopher Romero said that, so we had shared about this um, a vlog, like a video series of Chinese tourists going to North Korea over several years. And so Christopher Romero saying is that it was a real eye-opener and inspiration to see how even everyday life there in North Korea reflects a thoughtful social consciousness. Um, and then DJ Elf is adding and saying that it's hard to find Korean American activists. And I don't think he liked that Garland Nixon was speaking at our event, um, maybe in part because of his uh, disagreement with the February Rage Against the War Machine rally, but ultimately says that he appreciated the, the Korea event that we did um, and is asking, how did this empower, I guess, those of us who are Korean, how did this empower us as Korean Americans? Um, Dust James says that the DPRK is an inspiring, courageous example, exemplar for all of humanity to learn from. And then um, DJ Elf says, we must have power to leverage our knowledge. Knowledge without power is insufficient. I definitely feel that there's a lot of unfair propaganda attacking North Korea, but no system is perfect. The Korean language has social hierarchy baked into it. And I wonder if North Korea is impacted by this. I actually think that it's like an interesting point because it depends on how you interpret language. It depends on how you interpret Korea's civilizational heritage because I feel like this is this may just be a personal thing, but as a Korean person, like, yes, there is a kind of almost Confucian hierarchy that is like kind of written into like how people refer to each other in Korean, but I don't see it as a negative thing. And it's only negative when it's perverted in that way or when it's used in that way. And I feel like it's actually, for me, it's useful for having a sense of social awareness of who you are in relation to other people. And I feel like all of this is basically like how you interpret it and how it's used and uh, kind of interpreted and developed in modern times. Then Neha says, I'm really grateful that I could attend the conference. Uh, it made the question of war and peace very concrete, using Korean civilization as an example and how Korea was, de was decimated by the Korean War. All of this made me realize and appreciate the importance of peace as the central question for the upcoming US election and the urgency of this issue. And it also shows why people and especially children everywhere deserve a world based on peaceful cooperation between countries the photo exhibit, exhibition and the documentary that we showed on Friday really helped to see this common striving of the people. Um, and then DJ Elf has more comments about Korean people and there needing to be a Korean perspective and the peace movement. Um, and yeah, I'm not gonna read all those comments, but um, yeah, he's saying that there needs to be a Korean perspective in the peace movement. Um, and I guess maybe from here we could also talk about like the the DC rally that was also taking place. Um, that's I just wanted to say I think DJ Elf is wrong. Uh, I don't. I think we already had a Korean peace perspective, uh, and that was showcased very beautifully at the event. And the Korean peace perspective is also in line with the peace perspective of other civilizations. That's the point we were making, and we reject this kind of identity politics that you know. Your, like your identity uh, gives you some kind of moral authority. We, we operate on the basis of principle. Uh, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah, also in transitioning to the rally before that, I wanted to talk about how 
much I enjoyed the discussion as well with Garland Nixon, with Xiao Yin, with Jeremiah, Brandon, and Hejong, because it sort of it showed us democracy in practice. People who are acting in good faith and actually towards, you know, not we're not going to agree on everything, but at least there is a principle of we want to achieve peace. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? And like, what do we think are the steps towards achieving peace? And we were asking difficult questions, which is like, what is a peace movement in the U.S. to look like? Mm -hmm. And what I did appreciate about Garland Nixon and not just Garland Nixon, but everyone, but Garland Nixon is that he was speaking about how like the importance of ideas, but also the role of the U.S. in perpetuating identity politics. He said, you know, what's the point of naming uh, a fighter jet with like, I don't know, some Native American name when the Native Americans don't have running water or don't have good health? Like, what's the point of having a Korean American on some, on a military, as a military commander, if they're the ones that are going to destroy North Korea? And he made all these important points and he seems so open to communicating with the free school um, about uh, essentially what we're he was so like he I think he definitely was taken aback in terms right. of like you know Brandon being next to him and you know having the free school but also the nation of Islam but he was listening and I think same with Hejong too like it was um I think there was much more that we could have talked about but it was so important I think for us to hear about how difficult it is actually for Korean Americans to talk about the Korean War um then and also now and what uh, the Korean people have gone through. Uh, but I think the panel itself embodied what we're trying to achieve, which is that, you know, the American people themselves can come together and talk about the world and talk about the Mer American situation as well. Yeah, I think the other thing that the, um, the community discussion with Garland and, and all the people that Alice mentioned was important was that we established and addressed very directly, well, one, can there be a peace movement that looks down on the American people? <laughs> can there be a peace movement that doesn't actually believe in the American people? What kind of peace movement is that? Is that really a, a movement that's interested in peace? And um, I think we also talked about, you know, this phenomenon of, you know, the February rally, the March rally, should there always be a, um, like two rallies, like two rallies, basically every time there's like a new start of war that are always divided. Um, and on what basis should people unite on the question of peace? Like on what principles? Um, and I think under, I think Doc was getting at this during the roundtable discussion, but underlying our like our assessment of the 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 March rally that took place also during our event is the people who are organizing it, you know, are you organizing this basically with an anti-Trump, like with the kind of animus of an anti-Trump um, agenda? And can there be a peace movement that is anti-Trump? Not even so much against Trump as an individual, but the millions of people who are part of the Trump movement. Is that something that ultimately is some, yeah, again, are you actually really interested in peace? And, um, and yeah, I, I don't know, maybe Doc, if you wanted to talk about the the March rally, like the anti-coalition rally. Um, but yeah, I just, I think something that was affirmed for me through the discussion, especially at the end that Alice was saying is, 
yeah, like I don't want to be part of a peace movement that is looking down on the American people, that doesn't believe in the American people. Like that defeats the whole purpose of struggle, that de defeats the whole pur purpose of a movement in the United States. Like, why would I want to be a part of that? Why would any person want to be a part of that? And I think that the people who, whether they realize it or not, and I think they do realize it, like if you are trying to organize with that intention or with that basic ideological framework, then why are you struggling in the first place too? Like, what are your intentions? What are your motives? Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. Thanks, if you have something you wanted to say. Oh, I know you're unmuted, but uh, it's nothing crazy, but it's just how much I appreciate free school and like, because I also asked this on the civilization panel, which didn't have to be answered, but it did come out of a, like I had a reason for saying like, well, what is a Saturday free school? Like, what do we do? Um, and I only come back to that a lot because I think like, I don't know who just said it, but like, it, let me not get excited. The North Korea, like, it we can have pride in it. We can have this type of feeling uh, because it stuck to its guns. Like it stuck, it stood by like principle. It didn't fear. It, it did. I mean, it went through a lot, but you know, it just it chose what the right thing is to do, regardless of the cost in that sense. Cause like Magna was saying, like it was it was towards the future that they were gonna build society off of. It wasn't towards like it wasn't gonna react or it wasn't gonna so I just feel like when I was when I was thinking about like like what I mean by like well what is society free school, like what do we do? Like we're also like realigning uh like the question of peace, we're saying, you know, why Du Bois in this time? Like, why King? Like, why are these? Because Emily, like, when I was also thinking about your presentation and what you also just said of like, you know, um, you might have to stand, you have to stand by your own, you stand against your own government. Mm -hmm. And this time, even if it might cost you, like, people talking about you, people putting you down, you losing your job or whatever it might be like, because the point is like principle, like what is the actual necessity that this moment calls us all to do? Um, and I think that made me think about how this event was also different from the Black Reconstruction event, because I think the Black Reconstruction event set up these kinds of questions of like, well, what, what is the anchorage, what is the historical precedent that the people also um, take up in this time? And what are the values that people um, inherit from the, from the past struggles um, in the world peace movement? Um, and why is it important to be ideologically clear mm -hmm. um, about these mm -hmm. things? I think that the free school has been doing this for a long time and similar to how North Korea, even in uh, for a while, has been preparing itself for a moment in which the U.S. hegemony is no longer like right. precedent. Free school is also like preparing for a moment where new people can also arise in America um, and we can, 
you know, yeah. like we're preparing for these kinds of things. Um, why I, you know, why do we study so much? Why do we um, want to value like uh, the truth so much? Um, mm-hmm. Because this moment necess- necessitates the truth and mm-hmm. needs it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I was just, you know, as a side note, like the whole necessity thing, like, you know, theoretically, I guess we were talking about it a little bit for Black Reconstruction event. I don't know why I started thinking about that. But I think it just has to do with how, like, theoretically, we are literally advancing how we even speak to each other during our meetings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting to, like, <laughs> note. Because, like, again, when we're talking, like, in the Black Reconstruction event, we were like, well, it's not like we don't like Lenin. But we need boys, um, and we study the boys because he gives us answers for today. It's not like we're throwing Lenin away, we're using him. Um, that we are also thinking, like, it's not like we don't need, um, like, it's just that it, I'm not quite sure what it is or like the parallel, but it's just that King also has. <laughs> Or puts us in a position to mm-hmm. deal with the present. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like we don't need mm-hmm. others. Um, so I think like our thinking has, like Shantanu was saying earlier, has also shifted a bit, um, which is important because, like, as I don't know, it just seems like that the free school staying on post, it seems. Interesting. Okay, well, why does the free school change? How does the free school, um, well, operate? Well, because it's that we stay, we stay, the principle is the, you know, staying up uh, with the people, um, staying in alignment with uh, history, the right side of history, these things. So it's like, it's not like the free school is changing. It's just that we're able to think about things um in the right way um which is also not like an essentialist thing like oh that's Mm -hmm. but it's more about like well why is king so right or like why do we study black reconstruction why do we need north korea it's the same thing as why you need bread and water like (laughs) we need peace on the planet in order to live um so and we need education in order to develop like human sciences and the human being and everything like that. But you can't do that if you totally eradicate thought and learning and um, political discussion from a quote-unquote democracy. So, yeah. Well, I just wanted to very quickly add a comment. I mean, you know, our uh, the Korea event was on the 18th and so many people driving down from Washington, D.C. to this event on Korean civilization and path to peace when there was this national peace, it's being called a national peace rally uh, in DC. I mean, shouldn't we question what they see in the free school event versus what they don't see in that rally? Um, Yeah. I just wanted to add that to the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say, um, that, you know, just uh, kind of, um, I'd just like to add something to what Serafina was saying. Um, you see, if you 
if you look around, there are a lot of young people disenchanted with Bernie, disenchanted with DSA, uh, who have now embraced Marxism. Um, but, you know, for us, um, what does Marxism mean without Du Bois? What does any scientific discovery mean without uh, its being understood in relationship to more recent scientific developments? A uh, part of the problem of, um, quote, the discovery of logics or laws of social development is that people often use them or those discoveries as an excuse for not recognizing more recent scientific discoveries. And of course, you know, it is that synthesis. It is that dialectical evolution. And I think if I were to say what one of the things that we have achieved, and I agree with everyone, that makes it possible for us to do the Black Reconstruction event and the Korean event only weeks apart. And <laughs> of course, you know, a lot of nerves <laughs> and anxiety were produced, <laughs> but what, what is it about the way we work that makes that possible? And I think it is precisely, I think I agree with you completely, Serafina uh, and everyone else. And, you know, as to why did five people who, uh, two, of, uh, two of whom, or maybe three of whom, had been at the February 19th march, why on March 18th? Did they come to Philadelphia from Washington? And what was it about the March 18th March that did not have much of an appeal for them? Um, having spoken to a couple of them, um, I would characterize it or their preference for the career event over the Washington March is the fact that they felt the Korean event was anchored to the struggle to know the truth and to on the basis of the truth act. Whereas, and this is from a couple of them in my own assessment as well, the march on March 18th had more to do with obscuring the truth, especially of where the American people are politically and how the struggle for peace in Ukraine is connected to the American people's opposition to their own government. If that truth is obscured, or minimized, I don't think 
anyone can accurately talk of a peace movement, especially a peace movement of a new type evolving in this country. You just can't do it. It's like trying to ride two horses going in opposite directions. Either there will be a peace movement anchored to the American people's profound opposition to their own government and to their own government's spending in Ukraine while people are lacking for food in this country. There cannot be a peace movement without the American people. And I, I characterize the two marches as the March 18th March as a coalition of the woke and the February 19th March as a coalition of the discontented. And it is the discontented that represent the American people. The woke uh, coalition is out of step with the American people. And the American people have said it in no uncertain terms. We don't like woke politics. We don't like woke um, uh, ideology. We don't like identity politics because identity politics does more to make enemies, make the American people enemies of each other rather than to show them their common interests. Part of the discontentedness of the American people is their rejection of the ruling elite's embrace of woke politics and identity politics. That's, that's deeply rooted in this discontent. And they don't feel that the elite who embrace this ideology and deploy it and weaponize it against ordinary people, the elite, the billionaires, corporations and banks like SVB. Oh, that's a woke bank. Uh, JP Morgan is a woke, they're all woke. But one thing they all have in common is that they are part of the ruling class that is immiserating the American people. So, you know, I watched as much as I could or much as that was available of the march on March 18th. And I just have to say, uh, it was ideologically confusing. The February March was ideologically more clarifying. Listen to the speeches, compare the speeches, compare the demands. If the March, 18th March, was the left, then we have to acknowledge that the left is to the right of the people that they call the right. And then to change the demands almost on a weekly basis, 
and to claim. And here I, I must render this. I mean, what? I mean, either we just keep our mouths shut and don't say anything. Oh, every peace march is a peace march. That's not true. You could have a march in the name of peace, which is to undermine the emergence of a peace movement. And here is where ideological clarity is so important. This idea of a coalition of 200 organizations, you know, let's be honest and real with the American people. That was not a coalition. That was something thrown together of whoever, you know, you could get as a friend or contact, uh, irrespective of their relationship to the people in the local areas from which they come. This is fake. This is a fraud. This is a perpetration of a fraud. It is political dishonesty. It is political dishonesty. And so, indeed, the February 19th march was not without its profound weaknesses. First of all, it was dependent too much upon uh, people who have YouTube channels and calling out to their people to come. Well, we, we know, you know the internet can be helpful, but you have to have something going on on the ground. You know, the other thing is that there were not hardly the numbers of African-Americans that should have been there given African-American people's discontent with the current direction of the American government. Well, those are things to be overcome. However, it is, and I, you know, what can we, the, the march uh, 19th March had as a subtext that the February March cannot be the peace movement because it's too close to people who are not anti-Trump. It's very clear that the Glenn, Glenn Greenwalds and the uh, very interestingly, Chris Hedges and Dennis Kucinich's and uh, Tulsi Gabbard's. By the way, I did an interview, some of you listened to, and the guy attacked me because he says, I'm associated with people that have moved to the right. And I said, who are you talking about? Tulsi Gabbard. I said, move to the right. And, and I'm saying, well, if she's moved to the right, then what is the left? but it is to obscure, and that is what was going on. I, I remember one speaker, I was listening to her speech. We're not just for peace, we're against capitalism. You can't have peace until uh, capitalism ends. Well, were you talking about two, 100 more years of war? And how do you talk like that and claim to be a responsible actor. Well, let us hope that the people in the coalition, that so-called coalition that put on the 
March, uh, 19th March, that the better thinking people in that March will understand ultimately that the stakes are very, very high. That uh, if Trump continues to run on the platform that he's running on, his positions constitute a shock to the neoliberal elite that run the government. And that is what the fear of the ruling class is. It is, it is as clear as day. I mean, you know, um, Trump will run for president as a peace candidate. Doesn't define it the way we do. If Trump is to really be a peace candidate, he's going to have to understand what the free school understands that the great champion of peace in America is Martin Luther King, that positive peace is peace with justice, that if you're talking about put America first, that means put peace first. Mm. This is what he has to understand. And there are people such as Dennis Kucinich, uh, Chris Hedges, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, and others who spoke, who understand that for this nation to survive as a nation and as a people, it must become a nation of peace. And if you are against the American people, you are not fighting for peace. And the other thing is, I'll, I'll end on this, um, you know, they assess or estimate that in the March, March, there were 2,500 people who turned out, about the same number that turned out at the um, February, March. Uh, neither, you know, broke the scales in terms of turnout. Um, and that's another issue we have to address going forward. But one thing is clear, the march in February was not a march to discredit anybody else's peace activism. The march in March uh, explicitly said they were marching against the march in February. That is unacceptable. It must be said, that is unacceptable. Now you can do what you want to do, but it's unacceptable and it should be condemned. And as Gall and Nixon and uh, Wilma, Wilma Leon, they said it to me in no uncertain terms. I asked Garland, he said, I won't be a part of anything like that. And when I remember I asked him, or he said it on his own on the round table, he said that the peace movement going forward must be a peace movement of the working class. What does it mean? It must be a peace movement for justice and against poverty and against, uh, 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 you know, all of the things that affect the working, you know, so that's, and that's what I hope we commit ourselves to doing in our ongoing work, because the opportunities are better now than they've ever been. Uh, I don't 
recall during the height of the Vietnam War protests, anything close to the demands made on February uh, 18th. Nothing close to that. Uh, a peace march that said world peace will depend upon whether or not we can bring our own government to heal. Well, I'll just, that's all I would like to say. I just wanted to add, I also was able to watch the rally in March. And like you said, Doc, where individuals like Garland Nixon, but also Scott Ritter, Dennis Kucinich, in that rally, they had called on the importance of actually American people to come together, to unite. And the sense that I did get from the March rally instead is a division of the people. Because the same woman who you said that capitalism needs to like fall first before peace can be achieved. She was talking about her whole message was that um, white people, they are exploited, but they're not exploited the same ways that black people are. Like black people are more exploited. And then she even added the piece on like um, trans people are more, even more exploited on all these different dimensions. And so whereas you have on one hand, hand people who are actually trying to like unite people based on this contentment, on the class struggle, on the other hand, in this, you have a division where this LGBT thing, trans thing, disability thing, indigenous thing, all these different words were used to instead divide the people rather than bring the people closer or give more clarity on what they should unite on. And the other thing, um, it was a different speaker but this person had conflated Clinton and Obama and Trump. They said that the ICC had called for, I think like uh, to um, indict. Uh, indict Putin. And they were like, oh, we should also, like the ICC should also indict Clinton, Obama um, and Trump. And that is very confusing because that's different from what we're trying to say in the free school, which is that it's a Trump does represent a different phenomenon and actually a phenomenon that represents peace and potential for peace and to organize around peace. Um, and, you know, at first I was like, you know, we had been talking about this upcoming March and how it, it was acting in bad faith, but I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this and actually hear what they're going to say. And at first, like, you know, you could be like, oh yeah, sure. Like they're talking about peace. They're talking about Venezuela, Cuba, how could it be bad? But then it, get, it does become really confusing on the two points that I was mentioning, which is the division of the people, and then also on what Trump represents. Right. You know, also this capitalism, or we can't have peace while there's still capitalism, that's a Trotskyite argument, right? I mean, you would agree with me, and that's just like straight up, but also you can't have any kind of socialist government while this government exists, because it breaks down every attempt that people make to have a different kind of um, uh, choose a different kind of social system, which is why the argument has always been like, we need peace so the people can decide. So the people can decide. That's the centrality of peace. Um, and yeah, I, it just, it seems like it's just, people are very unclear about, well, so what are the deeper historical forces controlling a march like this? And yeah, this is why you need this historical perspective to understand who they are and where they're coming from because it might use new language, but it's really the same ideas. 
uh, and the same uh, ideological streams. Yeah, I feel like the other thing is that I feel like it's not like we're coming out as a free school out of the blue to just, we just suddenly decided to attack the anti-coalition rally, you know, all that. It's like we, I don't know what other people's exposure is, but we are listening to what the principal organizers and ideological mouthpieces of the anti-coalition rally, what they were saying, what they said about the the Rage Against the War Machine rally, and ultimately, yeah, like what they were saying at their own event. And um, like we're making our assessment based off of that and also based off of an understanding of where groups like, yeah, like Answer Coalition, like what they originate from, you know, in terms of the, the Trotskyist, the Trotskyist movement in the United States and that tendency. But I just feel like I know that there's a lot of comments in response to what we're saying, basically disagreeing with us in our assessment of the the March March. But part of it is that like we are listening to what the ideological, like the ideological quote unquote vanguard of the anti-coalition rally, what they're saying. And we're simply responding to that. It's not like we're fabricating all of these criticisms or disagreements out of the blue, you know? And, um, and yeah, like, I'm not going to go into all of the, the comments because it gets a bit, like people are saying like similar things in response to us, but, um, but yeah, I, I just feel like that needed to be said in terms of it's not like we're saying all of this out of the blue or we suddenly just decided to attack a peace march just because we happen to disagree with them but it's like no we're seeing the ideological attacks that they were making against the february march and we understand where that attack is coming from and like that needs to be actually discussed and understood and exposed um and yeah because ultimately the question is not about like which activist is right, but it's about where are the people moving? Where are the people moving? And can we join with the people and actually be a productive force as part of the people, like the American people's striving to become a whole people, like a new people who are actually part, who can actually see themselves as part of humanity. Um, but, but yeah. Would you be kind enough to read some of the comments on <laughs> what people are saying? Um, Okay, so DJ Alf has a lot of comments. Christopher, actually, this is going back earlier, but Christopher Romero says, King and Du Bois provide a closer look at the American people. They are like a gateway that connects us to a greater understanding of global humanity. Um, that was in response to our earlier conversation. Um, Dust James says, who attended the March March, says, after working a 60-hour week, I drove to D.C. from um, North Carolina and brought another comrade from Florida who couldn't afford the full trip. I was glad to stand against war with good folks in D.C. on the 18th as part of the anti-coalition march. And then he said that the February Rage Against the War Machine mar march was more about a few people's egos, referring to like the, the YouTube personalities. Um, VA from NY says, um, sorry says that libertarians like to speak like populists, but he but is asking us to please investigate this further. Um, Dust James says that Trump is a neoliberal imperialist who's been nothing more than controlled opposition. Um, VA from NY says, Answer Coalition is 20 years old. Not all of their orgs are worthy of support, but how is it thrown together? As far as I know, Answer Coalition, they all have a history of standing for peace and not against the people. 
Um, Virginia Cotts asks, um, does, it, does it help to go back to Lenin and his thesis on the national question in terms of understanding this dynamic? Uh, Philip Logan says, Magnus' position is in the right direction, but it's important to remember Huey P. Newton's position on revolutionary intercommunalism, which states that socialist uh, polities that have achieved sovereignty within, world, within a world capitalist system are liberated communities, while total peace may not be achievable, their existence as social states requires solidarity from an international movement for peace in order to ensure the historical trajectory of a world socialist movement to overthrow the hegemony of global capital, which forestalls the achievement of peace. And then Christopher Romero adds, if opportunist quote unquote activists are saying that the American people need to unite, why would people who genuinely believe in it not join it and prove how it can be a reality? And I think it's basically saying like, even if you assume that like, let's say some of the YouTube people may have been disingenuous, but they're still saying the American people need to unite. Like we're not gonna back away from a movement that says the American people need to unite. And I think, yeah, I, I feel like it's like from our experience, especially the February rally, like we did not find disingenuous behavior from the speakers or from the attendees. And I think the attend like the people who actually attended the march are really important. Like that was our experience of just seeing people who were there, talking to people who were there. And what we saw was, I think what Doc was saying, like in an embryonic form, what a new people's, a new peace movement can look like. That was our assessment of it from going to it and seeing the kind, the quality of the people who attended. And um, yeah. Well, yeah. well, I think also this, I think a lot of this is like based on a different understanding of Trump, yeah. like what Donald Trump actually means. Right. Because I think one thing is that people make a lot out of Trump's supposed racism and try to use that to define him and to say, but the thing is that we've had this discussion multiple times in free school. The reason why people look to Donald Trump is not because they're like, yay, finally a racist. It's because Trump is actually outspoken against the American government. And that's the thing. People like I think people who are really anti-Trump want to say that Trump's enemy is like POC working class people. Mm -hmm. But I would say that Trump's actual enemy is the D.C. elite. And if you are trying to make the enemy of Trump be the working class, like people of color, I feel like that's a fundamental misunderstanding. And that's also why I think there's just a lot of, I think, going around in circles yeah. about this. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah. Yeah, I just think because, yeah, at the February March when we were there, it didn't like I would not say that like we felt out of place. Like we we're literally just a group of like Asian and black people like no one was racist towards us. And I feel like I just think that it's a weird thing to assume that all those people are like so racist. And that's the only thing that Trump can produce, because um, also like in relation to the Korea event, like objectively, Trump was the biggest chance that the Korean Peninsula had to achieve yeah. peace. It was the first time that an American president actually had direct talks right. and it was so close to being achieved. And I think that people like shit on the fact that that deal didn't actually work out as saying, oh, Trump was just like Clinton. Trump was just like Obama. No, he was not just like them. He actually met with them. And one of the reasons why that deal didn't work out was because of all of those like fucking swamp people like John Bolton. And I just think that it's very disingenuous to try to act like it's the exact same phenomenon when it's something very different. Like mm -hmm. it's not fair. And I think it's also very unfair to the people who support Trump, who are not just white and who are not just racist. Right. 
all of the per all of the people who I know personally who are like actual Trump supporters are quote unquote POC. Yeah. Also, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Meg. Well, I just this I think this national question point is important because I think there's a big difference between the national question and a principled way of dealing with race. I mean, it's it goes back to the philosophical basis of all of this. Do you believe that working people are more racist than the ruling elite? You know, that's like that's so clear with ropes and he's like the racism was at the, with the Princeton blue bloods. It doesn't matter how woke they are. They still they use the the this woke language to cover up all the racism that they do and continue to do because they are the ones with power. And so I think this is an opportunity to talk about an actual national question, an actual racial reconciliation, but from the perspective of the American people going off of this history. I mean, and just to fill Logan's point about revolutionary intercommunalism, I mean, yeah, that's a beautiful theory. Um, I mean, I think the way that Huey is dealing with uh, national liberation struggle, I think it's just very interesting and the way he talks about globalization kind of anticipates globalization. But I also think this is a different time where the nation, I mean, the American people as a people have the opportunity to undermine the state as a whole. I mean, it's different than just liberating neighborhoods. And I don't know, it's just the scope for things is so much bigger than what we had in the 70s. And that also has to be understood and acknowledged. But um, other people can speak to it more. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Meg, about the moment today. And it needs to be clarified what moment we're in. And to also help explain why we have to also recognize there are counter-revolutionary forces. And you may not realize you are basically letting yourself be driven towards a counter-revolutionary force, but let's be real about the principles and the substance of what's being talked about, and which is also why I agree with Nuri. I think a lot of it has to do with Trump. But the interesting thing is, let's bring back what Jahan and Magna talked about earlier, how Matt Gates, of all the people in Congress, is calling out AFRICOM for what it is. Who has ever done that in the halls of Congress? No one, because traditionally the ruling elites who have ruled Congress are the ones who gave AFRICOM the money and power mm -hmm. to assassinate African revolutionary leaders. Mm -hmm. And who who and who allowed a Matt Gates to form? Who who opened up who put a shock to the political system in the US to even allow Matt Gates to be who he is and speak the way he did by calling out the leader of AFRICOM as, as being part of training people to do coups. Trump, that was Trump. Trump, his movement, whoever he represents, they're the ones allowing that shock to the system. And that's what you were talking about, Megna. Like, let's talk about the opportunities we have here. And the other thing I wanna bring up again is how, again, I've said it many times, but I'll bring it up again, how beautiful it is that the February March spent most of its time at the Lincoln Memorial. That's the memory of King. And that was your point, Jahan. Like that has to constantly be brought up. That is the impact of King. That was paying homage to the memory of King, whether it's subconscious or conscious. It has to be, con it's in the American consciousness. And that that is the power, in my opinion, that's the, that is the power of the February March um, that it began. Like it said, let us come back 
to this holy place where there was once an American revolution, our last American revolution. And I don't care if you think that the crowd was white in February, if you think they were too white, too Trumpist, too whatever, not anti-capitalist enough, it stands on its own that we return to the holy ground of that last American revolution, the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement. Um, because that is, that is a big point of people who are against the February March is saying, well, like it wasn't led by black people or colonized peoples. <laughs> okay, well, have you ever thought that maybe we actually are all oppressed by a ruling elite who is crazy on war? Have you ever thought that the American people are more and more discontent with a ruling class who we are now be who are we are now more and more conscious of and aware of does not represent our interests? That's something to be celebrated, not put down. And any attempt to put down that march is playing into the discourse in power and like confusion being sowed by the ruling class. Yeah, like what you're saying is reminding me like lest us forget. What was it? Let us not forget. It, um, no, I don't know. It's just something in Dennis Kucinich's, uh oh. speech that Emily, when you're speaking, it just kind of like uh, helped me remember again. Like, let us return back to the fundamentals of America mm-hmm. and who we are mm-hmm. as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, our, Alice had pointed out this thing that helped me, or just like made it obvious, like when we were kind of going over the uh speeches from the march in march the title of that march was like peace in ukraine or something and the the title for the february march is rage against the war machine so it's like an obvious difference what the purpose is um obviously like reiterating doc's point the february march is more ideologically clarifying um i thought so I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. the march. Yeah, I think it, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking to myself. Mm-hmm. The march in March actually obscures everything that. I think it was. I, I agree with you. Yeah, it just. And it's obviously like mobilized or like forces of nonprofit from the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, and they're not mobilizing or moving any body or like any people, rather like a, a certain already like um, aligned forces of like corporations and organizations or like people that already um, are in, in like already institute, like answer coalition, like these organizations did not come out of like thin air um, and they are like more, uh, or they operate off of like, I don't know, it's just like, it's just uh, the... Could, could I just yeah. say, could, I mean, if, if y'all don't mind, you know, I think this um, this thing of woke politics, see, I think... If I would, if I were inside the heads of the people that did the march, nineteenth march, I think they assumed. I think they made certain assumptions that the force of woke 
politics would be enough to propel their march forward, uh, which means that they would rely uh, disproportionately upon students and uh, people who are less clear, I mean, because of age and experience. So they were going to rely upon woke and identity politics. Uh, so if you have a grievance based upon identity, uh, this is the place to be. Does that make sense? If you have a grievance, for instance, uh, if you are a black person and because of the historic grievance of black people, then you belong in this because we're acknowledging your identity. Uh, if you are LGBTQ, this is where you belong because we are acknowledging your identity. So what they call coalition building is not really coalition building. It's not really based upon principled unity because it's just saying, well, we're gonna create a space for you, uh, but let's not forget who is running the show. It is we, the quote, answer coalition, which is another name for PSL. We're calling this and we're inviting you and we, have, we are the peace movement. Now, you know, I find that kind of dealing with black people to be highly offensive. And I wanna know how black people who claim to be revolutionaries don't find it offensive. Um, and how then to carry out a march you have to smear people who called an earlier march. And it turns out ironically that the people that called the Rage Against the War Machine march uh, supported the march last weekend, which the people who called the March 19th march didn't support the February march, in fact smeared them and attacked them in the most unprincipled way. I agree with Alice's characterization. There is such a thing as bad faith in politics and in people's movements. And I would say uh, to anyone, uh, show where it is not bad faith to conduct a peace march in opposition to a previous March for Peace, where the demands were clear. I don't know of any political movement, social movement, where there is not a united front of people who don't agree on everything. I, I, I just don't understand. I mean, I mean, what is the criticism of what we're saying? Prove the opposite. Prove the damn opposite. The evidence is clear. The outcome is clear. Even with all of your appeal, and I'm this is me talking, 
and appeal to the ruling elite that we are not that bad peace movement, which is more closely aligned to Trump and his movement. We are the peace movement more aligned with the liberals, the Democratic Party. And they were highly upset that the corporate media did not give them the benefit of the doubt. In other words, uh, say how great a march this was because it was anti-Trump and it was aligned with the, with the liberals and a part of the Democratic Party. That's, you know, in, effect, you know, in the commentary, if people got something to show the opposite, bring it forward. Yeah, uh, also, I wanted to add, um, I, I apologize someone said this because I stepped away, but in terms of, uh, because, you know, the, the irony is that people are criticizing the Rage Against the War Machines. Uh, the critics are saying, oh, because they included, quote unquote, right wing elements and all that. But ideologically, uh, two things that really stuck out to me uh, and maybe three things in the the recent march that were nowhere in the Rage Against War Machine, despite the fact that it was people of different uh, ideological perspectives. I mean, one, we already talked about the uh, thing that it was basically subtly or not so subtly anti-Trump, a number of the speeches, uh, even though they would try to say we're against both parties and everything, but the, the, you can kind of get the sense that the substantively it's an anti-Trump thing. Um, and then um, the other thing is that a number of people including the so-called, you know, black representatives and the so-called black representing so-called black peace groups and nationalist groups or whatever. They made it a point uh, to talk about colonized people, you know, basically saying that everyone else is a colonizer. You're not a colonized, you're a colonizer. So you could draw the conclusion the previous march is a colonizer's march. And one of them even said, O'Malley Yeshitela, that, uh, you know, it's not enough to be against bigotry. You have to be against colonialism. And um, it's not enough to be uh, against a particular war crimes. The America itself is a war crime. And so, I mean, where do you go from that? I mean, and to the people who attended who are, uh, you know, white or in another category uh, that's uh, considered to be settlers. In fact, actually, there was a guy who said, I'm a Japanese Korean settler in the United States, a Japanese Korean settler in the island of Oahu in Hawaii. I mean, if, if I don't know if you feel a kind of virtue signaling or you feel good calling yourself a settler, and it, you know, assuages some sense of guilt. I mean, good for you, but that's not really politics of peace right there. That's a politics against the American people, if you want to call all of them or the majority of them settlers. And then uh, lastly, uh, one thing, I mean, in the uh, Rage Against the War Machine, okay, there was a number of perspectives about how people reacted to the Russian government's actions. But even, but pretty much, I would say that almost all the speeches put the onus on the United States, even if they talked about they disagreed with Russia's actions. But I saw uh, Noam Chomsky, who they, they were promoting as a key, great keynote speaker, greatest intellectual, blah, blah, blah. He said in his speech, he, in his speech, he compared Vladimir Putin's actions to Israel's actions in Gaza, which nobody said in the Rage Against the War Machine march. So, I mean, they are claiming to have a left march, but they ironically don't have those ideological red lines, whereas the Rage Against the War Machine, okay, it has libertarians, it has socialists, capitalists, you name it. But 
you know, there was a kind of, like we were saying, there was a kind of clarity about the onus is on the United States. The onus is on NATO. We have to, we must reach out. Okay, this March, we we ourselves are saying had, had weaknesses, but it was saying we need to reach out to the American people. It was basically a clarion call for a new peace movement, like Doc was saying, a new peace movement that can reach out to the discontented. But, uh, I mean, that's the thing. If you put, if you're doing, organizing a march against that, then you're trying to, to stop this and you're claim, you're trying to claim your own monopoly. And yeah, the Rage Against the War Machine, uh, they did try to take the high road and say, okay, we are not against this this march happening in March. You know, we support all marches. But you clearly see the contrast in, in how this whole thing played out. Well, the other thing, I think there has to be clarity about what is decolonization. Mm-hmm. Isn't the getting military bases out of countries decolonization? isn't pulling out of NATO decolonization. I don't care if he calls it a shithole country as long as he gets the hell out. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't making, you know, making strides towards peace with North Korea decolonization? Isn't, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, going against dollar hegemony, that's decolonization. I mean, let give people a chance. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they want to lead, you know, they want to lead the world. And it's like, no, we have to create space for the people of the world to fulfill their own destinies. That's our job in the United States. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a lot of like bending about words without any substance, mm. which is, yeah, just speaks to the dumbing down of political discourse. I mean, things are just all about words, not about substance. Yeah. Yeah, Jahan, I totally agree with your third point about um, like where the onus is and even also Magna to your, what you were saying, because um, I believe it was Medea Benjamin. She was like, we are peace lovers, but I'm condemning Russia, Russia. till I'm blue in the face. Yeah. And that was just a contradiction. And, and, and that was the most ridiculous, like just um, sharp contradiction. But it was something that was shared across many speakers yeah. of condemning Russia. But instead, like you know, in the earlier March, it was not condemning, just it was talking about the U.S.'s role, mm-hmm. NATO, et cetera. Yeah. I feel like there's a sort of comfort level of just like these sort of groups have like this thing where they don't think of, they think of Democrats as left, Republicans as right. We're not, we're, ne- we're neither. We're like a middle path. Mm-hmm. We're some sort of thing. We're like, we're not either. But the thing is that it's also like, is sinister because it expresses a comfort with with the Democrats, with the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. if anything, if it came down to it, like they would be much more supportive of the Biden administration mm-hmm. with all these things where, of course, we're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're pro-Democrats. We're very for Biden. Mm-hmm. But it's the sort of thing underneath of just we're uncomfortable with what mm-hmm. Trump represents. Mm-hmm. And so we want this new middle path that doesn't have either. And it's like and this is the realignment happening either of like, is Republican really right? Is Democrat really left mm-hmm. at this point? Like, what does that even mean in this like fluid moment? And so I think it ignores the opportunity like actually happening historically now that there is something to be, like the movement of the American people is happening and like tracking that, not just seeing like mm-hmm. these sort of old categories and seeing them as just the way right. it is. Right. Because that also gets to, you know, how you understand race and white supremacy, which is what something we've been talking about in the free school for a while. But our assessment is that the current left is basically the vanguard of trying to reimpose the color line on the American people. This is something that we, it's not just that we're pulling this out of thin air, but we have observed it 
many of us come from quote unquote the left or come from the universe, especially the university left, or at least some of us do. And it's like part of the reason why we're talking about, like, even for me personally, is that <laughs> like I say it maybe not in the in the best way, but like the I understand the people who maybe like are part of PSL or are part of all these groups. It's like almost I see them as almost like the kind of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like I know these people. I know them, I know many of them personally, you know. And I think some of us were also on that path in our lives. And for us, like the tragic thing is that they are being weaponized basically to whether they know it or not, to reinscribe the color line on the American people. And that objectively is the leading edge of basically white supremacy, whether you want to call it that or not. And like, yeah, I like for me, I say all I like I say all of these things because yeah, like I know a lot of the people who may have attended, who are interested in like the answer coalition thing, who may be part of it. And like I don't know if you realize too how, you know. Maybe you think that like the rage against the war machine was being manipulated by X, XYZ forces, but you don't see how you're being manipulated by the ruling class. You're being led by people like Gerald Horn ideologically who say that objectively the Biden administration and the New York Times are better than the rest of the quote unquote white, white left in terms of being against racism. Like these are the people who are objectively and ideologically making these arguments and assessments and they're the ones who are, quote unquote, like the ideological vanguard of your movement. And they're the ones who are leading you to be essentially foot soldiers of a ruling class project. And yeah, like, I guess, yeah, for me, it's just like, I say a lot of it just because, yeah, I know a lot of these people. And I don't, I think that it's a waste of the potential of these young people who are being marshaled into these movements without knowing exactly how they're being manipulated. And um and yeah, also, I, I know that it's it's way past when we usually end, um, but I just wanted to say that. But I don't know if other people have closing thoughts. If not, we can just end the, the live stream. But yeah, I'm glad we talked about the, the rally and we spent this more time talking about it. Um, I know that there's a lot of comments. Um, Why don't you read some? Let's see. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll read some of them. Uh, so yeah, Dust James is making the same point that that the MAGA movement is explicitly racist. Um, Christopher Romero, on the other hand, says, yes, we need to quote unquote ride the wave of, I think, the Trump movement. And he's saying if people in the Freedom Caucus, like Matt Gates, are saying these things that challenge the US state, it means that there is enough people who believe in it. This is an advantage. Um, and I think he was agreeing with Emily and saying that, yes, we are all oppressed here in America as working class people. To be manipulated is not freedom. Then Virginia Cotts is saying, I have a hard time knowing what position to take on trans and other, quote, special interest groups. Of course, we want equality and justice for all. But doesn't that mean we should focus on unity rather than a bunch of special interest groups? And, um, and yeah, Christopher saying, the recognition of identity essentially equates to, quote, Sure, I made your life terrible, but I hear you. I won't do anything to fix it, but I hear you. Um, and then Dust James is again saying that the anti-coalition march was not a counter rally against the Rage Against the War Machine march because it was planned for the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. And he's saying that everyone I met there was anti-Biden and anti-Trump, as we all should be. And then the saying that narrow nationalism um, 
is not nearly the problem that racism is. And so he says, I was glad, I was glad to stand with the Uhura movement against the war, regardless of their absurd position of calling workers settlers. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I don't know if you want to read more comments. Oh, uh, Christopher also says, if you can't even be in the same rally with people of a different ideology to achieve peace, then how are you expecting people who are not a monolith to trust in your cause? That's my position on it. Um, and then he says, I brought this up with Midwestern Marx about how all of this seems to have started on the internet, on a site called Tumblr, and yet oddly it's made its way into academia and to, in, into mainstream conversations. Uh, it's possible to see what psyops can be pushed and accepted within social media spaces. The idea that you have, your, you have to put your identity first in your bio judges whether or not you can speak on a topic. And so he's talking about how, and I think a lot of us have seen this with especially like, uh, like Trotskyist groups, but this whole thing where, you know, even in terms of how they organize spaces, it's like always quote unquote colonized people get to speak first in conversations and white people always have to speak last. And, um, and yeah, a lot of it did has kind of, kind of blossomed out of social media discourse, I think in terms of like this like whole fixation on identity. Um, but yeah, th that's a, a lot of the, um, a lot of the comments. Yeah, you know, um... You know, there, there's a lot that we won't be able to resolve today, but in the ongoing conversation over these matters, because the struggle for peace uh, will not end with these two marches, it's ongoing. And it will, uh, as we see with Matt Gates, I mean, who would have ever thought it? Who would have ever thought that he would be the leading voice in the Congress against Af AFRICOM. Who would have ever thought it? Who would have ever thought that uh, a person like Donald Trump would be the peace candidate? Now, if you want to say, well, he's not honest, you can't believe anything he says, uh, but many of the people who make that claim that he is a a congenital liar uh, will vote for Biden. And let us not forget, this is the most warlike administration maybe in the history of this country. No presidential administration has brought us closer to the brink of nuclear war and continues to talk about war with China is carrying out the largest, most lethal um, war games on the Korean Peninsula right now. Oh, you want to prettify that? I think we have to be as clear as possible. Mm -hmm. This is where the danger arises. And all of those Republicans and Democratic senators and Congress people who are making all of these belligerent statements about what they want to do in Ukraine, including introducing U.S. troops yeah. in Ukraine. This is war with Russia. 
let we have to get beyond these infantile woke politics. This might work on a college campus, you know, among young kids that don't know that much. Mm -hmm. But the real world is not dependent upon how, quote, angry you are over whatever. And, and I, I agree with the way Serafina put it. We have to align with that emerging movement among the people of this country. We have to align with that. We have to see not what is the weakness, and there are many, many weaknesses among all sides of the American people, but we must see what is positive and what is emerging. That's where we have to go. That's mm -hmm. the only responsible, good faith politics. And, and I don't know what people are talking about. This was not a march against the February 19th march. That's not what the people who were organizing this march said. They said explicitly the, quote, right, by which they mean the Libertarian Party, which, well, right, what do you mean, right? You know, Libertarians are all over the place. In fact, Noam Chomsky called himself a socialist libertarian. There are all kinds of libertarian politics. But the fact of the matter is, if that is what you are protesting, that libertarians and a, a, a small party, the People's Party, initiated this, if this is what you're protesting, you don't know what the stakes are. And if you don't know what the stakes are at this time, you have no authority or right to speak in the name of peace. You're operating in bad faith. Hmm. And uh, can I just, one other thing, you know, I was in an interview, guy interviewing me, thought it was shocking that I even went to the February March which I found shocking that, and then I said, well, I voted for Trump in 2020. I don't, I guess I was, how many shocks could I bring to his consciousness? But are we, a, I said, I took a calculated risk. Trump said he wanted to pull back from NATO or disband NATO. Trump said that he didn't want war with Russia or China. Okay, Biden is saying the opposite. But anyway, that's another thing. But look, we have to align with what is emerging mm -hmm. among our people. The masses of American people are not settlers. They're working people. Most of them are poor working people, to dismiss them as settlers is a is horrendous injustice. Mm -hmm. I'll stop there because uh, Serafina has to go to work and I have to open the door. Sorry. <laughs> I've got to go eat. Yeah, I think um, one of King's phrases has been rattling around in my head for the past week or so where he was like, now is the time for real choices and not false ones. Oh, 
like this is the time when the choices that you make actually matter, you know, um, and that relates to the world situation, but also how you choose to relate to the changing dynamics and the, as you were saying, the new forces that are emerging within the American people. Because yeah. um, yeah. that was, I mean, when we did our Korea event, that was the main question at the round table was, how do you, like, what do we believe the American people are capable of? Um, and yeah, if, if other people don't have thoughts, then we can end the live stream. But thanks to everyone who participated in the discussion. Um, and yeah, see you next week. Bye. Okay.